Hey, there's more to fantasy baseball than just roto and points. I'll talk about that and more with Matt Beagle, the Stratomatic Analyst at Baseball HQ, and Jeff Barton from Scoresheet Baseball, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 5th. It's show number 10 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have our first unscheduled Great Friday Really Full Edition for you. We'll start with our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols is on the temporarily inactive list while he tends to his family, so Ray Murphy will play both ends of the Market Watch doubleheader. He'll start with the delayed start of AAA, then add coverage of the National League, including Jan Gomes, some National League Lima starters, and more. And then Ray will follow up with news from the American League, including more Lima starters, recency bias affecting the values of J.D. Martinez and Glaber Torres, plus some more player analysis. We'll have our HQ Spotlight with Matt Beagle, who writes about Stratomatic for Baseball HQ, discussing how Strat differs from other formats, why he loves it, how the short season in 2020 affects the 2021 Strat season, some Strat value players, and even more. And later we'll have a special second feature. We're joined by Jeff Barton from Scoresheet Baseball, telling us about how Scoresheet works, what makes it a particular kind of fun, how it's different from Strat, and from mainstream fantasy formats. Of course, we'll have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at LA outfielder DJ Peters. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about my huge blunder in the great fantasy baseball invitational. It's another big Friday, really full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's time to relax, open your mind, and prepare for the alternate universe in fantasy. What that means is we're going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday, really full edition, our Market Watch Player News reports. And leading off our National League news and Baseball HQ co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Ray Murphy, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Double header for you today. Hey, yeah, I've uh, you know I've got my full five days of rest and I'm ready to go. Let me uh, let me throw 200 pitches here, <laughs> like uh, Hoss Radburn or one of those old guys uh, back totally. in the day, right? Uh, what 60 innings in a day? No problem. Uh, hand me that pillow ball, you know that uh, nobody can hit farther than 16 feet. <laughs> And I'll just get after it. Uh, the biggest news of the week so far really doesn't have that much to do with particular players, Ray, but I wanted to get your take on it. Major League Baseball announced that because of COVID protocols, they're going to delay the start of AAA by a month. So it's not going to start now until early May, and the alternate sites will reopen instead of having actual AAA games. First, uh, how is Baseball HQ looking at this from the perspective of player projections? You know, I, there are no global adjustments, I don't think, but there are going to be some individual cases that need attention. I think the biggest issue is uh, 
you know, you, in April, we're used to seeing teams doing uh, playing time shenanigans with, you know, was widely expected for Jared Kellenick this year or the, you know, the um, quintessential example of Chris Bryan five years or so ago when the uh, Cubs sent him down to work on his defense uh, for you know, <laughs> coincidentally, one more, coincidentally one more day than the uh, service time requirements. And then ma- suddenly he mastered third base and was back up. I mean, everybody knows that's a, you know, that's a fig leaf. Uh, and, you know, the fig leaf was, you know, sort of pulled aside by uh, the former Mariners president who talked openly about it and as a result got fired a couple of weeks ago. Um, this makes the fig leaf even harder to justify. How, how can you say that the best thing for uh, Koenig's development is to send him to the alternate site and play scrimmages against who knows who for a month rather than just being on the Mariners roster right from opening day. It doesn't mean anything's going to change because the service time is a significant consideration, but you know, it might mean it's harder to lie about it, I guess. Yeah. Well, major league baseball owners have certainly never had any problem with lying about things. So uh, I'm sure they'll be happy to, as you said, keep the fig leaf in place and uh, not show anything uh, significant, but Right now, Ray, if, if you're you're in drafts, uh, you're in the TGFBI as I am, if you're looking at Wander Franco, Jared Kalanick, guys like that, are you downgrading them uh, as far as how likely you are to take them at a particular point in the draft? I don't think I'm downgrading, but that's probably from the perspective of where I was on those guys to begin with. I'm not convinced we're going to see Franco in the majors at all this year, or he might be a September call-up. That's sort of how I've been thinking of him. So uh, I don't think he's somebody who is uh, quite affected by this. Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I think his timeline remains his timeline. I mean, we're projecting him for uh, 30% playing time, which is, you know, probably splitting the difference a little bit and a more of a, you know, second half August kind of call-up. Um Kalenic, for the reasons I just said, is a little more interesting. You know, I, I think this may actually be increasing the chances that the Mariners for public relations slash best thing for the player slash best thing for the team perspective, you know, actually let him start the season. So I, I have I think I, I think his ADP is actually going up lately, and I'm not sure I'm ready to alter the projections that way, but I think it's something to at least watch and see if he is you know, when game as games get started, if he's somebody who uh, you know looks like they're busting the door down in Arizona and you know, making it hard for the Mariners to send him out. Obviously, if he hits a buck ninety five in March, then <laughs> then the, there's plenty of fig leaf left there. Uh, but you know, I, that's of, of of the two super prospects, Kalenic and Franco. Kalenic's the one I'm watching a little more. How does the resumption of the alternative sites factor into everybody's calculations? I think the best answer is we don't know yet. I mean, if you think about the logistics of this, um, you know, I think the expectation was that for the, they had already announced that the single and double A seasons were going to be delayed. Now they've rolled triple A into that. And I think the expectation was that single and double A players were going to sort of report to camp when the big leaguers moved out and they're trying to you know, sort of reduce the density in the, uh, in the camps and they'll sort of cycle people in. So now they're going to have a place to send, I guess, the big league players who are ready, who, uh, or big league ready players who did not make the team, your 15th pitcher and fifth middle infielder and third catcher and those sort of things. But you know, is it going to be 20 guys on a ta- on a sort of a taxi squad thing compared to last year's 60? Or are they going to send the entire AAA roster to the alternate site until 
at least until camps, until the AAA season starts. I don't think we have a lot of information yet. Are there any positives to this? If I squint, I mean, Dwayne, you know, if you're a minor league fan and have hopes of, you know, sitting at a ballpark and uh, watching your local AAA team this summer, I mean, Dwayne, the season, and to be fair, we don't know whether Dwayne, the season actually means stretching it out on the other end either, or whether it will still end around Labor Day weekend. But Dwayne, the season might help more people get vaccinated. Maybe we get to the point where players are vaccinated by you know fairly early in their season based on the current US government timelines uh, the, you know the news this week was every adult should have access to a at least one dose of a vaccine by the end of May so you know you're shrinking the window when players and fans are going to have to play games or go to games not vaccinated so i guess that's a good thing um you know, and in the meantime, I, I suppose the alternate site allows them to, like I said, manage distancing and capacity at the camps and, you know, sort of reduce travel and, you know, exposure to um, hotels and other places where you might pick up the virus. So I guess those are good things. But no, it's, you know, it's just a reminder that, you know, while things are getting better, we're not out of the woods yet. And while we're all excited about a 162 game major league season and a plausibly representative minor league season there there are still i think the best news of all was uh, the announcement by the u.s federal government that they expect everybody to be vaccinated by may uh, i don't think that's going to be the case not because they're not getting the vaccines out there but because there are still states where there's a fairly high level of resistance and unfortunately there are a lot of major league teams in those states which could still lead to some kind of trouble even if all the players get vaccinated there's still the problem of what happens if there's a super spreader event in Houston or in Dallas or someplace uh, I, I think we're not out of the woods in that regard yet either uh, sources close to the Marlins race say the club has signed a minor league deal with veteran left-hander Gio Gonzalez and given him an invitation to big league camp. Uh, is there any fantasy interest in Gio Gonzalez anymore? I mean, we're, this, we're in the year 2021, right? So uh, if yeah. so, the answer is no. <laughs> you know, we've, we've been on a bunch of these guys in, um, you know, in recent segments here, PD. You know, I'm reminded of our conversation about Matt Harvey, and I know you and Harold, I think, covered Scott Casimir and Matt Moore, you know, there's a, there's, there's a 2013, 2014 all-star team of pitchers still kicking around the bottom of major league rosters here. And we could throw uh we could throw geo on that list. You know, he's now 35 years old. Uh, he hasn't been good for a long time, despite a very credible major league career. You know, he's got, you know, 330 game starts. He's got 130 wins in his career, a career ERA of 370. I mean, he's done a lot of good work, but not a lot of it has been recent. He had sort of a fluky, really good 2017 where he threw 200 innings at a, you know, sub four, at a sub three ERA. He hung up a random 296 ERA despite very average peripherals. Uh, you know, a BPV of 80, which is, you know, very close to the, uh, the league average line right now. Um, and but since then, it's been 420 in 2018, a, a short sample of 350 in 2019. So, you know, he was still hanging in there, at least not getting knocked around until last year when uh, it in uh, 32 innings, he hung up a 483 ERA and uh, that was backed by an even worse 511 X ERA. So the wheels came off. And, you know, to be fair, I'm a big fan of uh, giving out mulligans for bad performances in the screwy 2020 season. But 
Uh, this is not one of the guys who I would just sort of wipe away what happened last year because, uh, you know, I, I think the larger long-term theme here is uh, father time coming for uh, Mr. Gio Gonzalez. I looked him up on StatCast, and Gonzalez is 85th percentile in 2020 for exit velocity allowed, 74th percentile in hard contact allowed, and 81st percentile for whiff percentage. Those seem like something. Uh, why, why are they not something? I see your good points in the Statcast profile, and you know we can counter we can counterband those too. Uh, you know his velocity is way down. Uh, you know uh, it's been looking at our numbers. It's been since 2016 before since his average fastball has been even 90 miles an hour. That's uh, 17th percentile for uh, 14th percentile actually for uh, for Statcast numbers, and he doesn't counterbalance that. Uh, low velocity with pinpoint control. Uh, he was always had, you know, his career numbers are four, over four walks per nine. And you know, last year was actually over five. Uh, that's a 16th percentile number in StatCast. Those are bad news. Those are bad numbers. And, you know, let's also keep in mind what the Marlins are asking them for here. They've got their rotation pretty much in place. They've got Sandy Alcantara, Pablo Lopez, Elise Hernandez, Sixto Sanchez. That's the front of their rotation. You know, there's a you know, revolving door open competition for the fifth spot, and maybe Gio fits in there somewhere. More than likely, that door keeps revolving all year, and Gio will get a month of starts at some point to then wander over to the DL or the alternate site and come back. You know, I, I think that's the kind of role you're looking at here. Something I read said that they might keep him around as kind of a mentor for these younger starters to get them through the tough times. They're all pretty young, I think, 25 and younger, the bunch of them. And by the way, all pretty good fantasy uh, pitchers, all four of those guys in that Miami rotation. They're going to be undervalued because of the team context, but these guys can pitch. Uh, Any other notable contenders for that fifth starter slot that we should be looking at? It's it's an open competition, like we said. Uh, You know, no other... You know, veteran, you know, well-known names like Geo, uh, guys like Trevor Rogers, Braxton Garrett, uh, Nick Neidert or Niedert, and uh, Daniel Castano are some of those names I've seen attached to that role. But like I said, in this, you know, in this season with innings limits, and especially for a young, young team like the Marlins, where you think that they're going to be even more protective of those arms than some other teams, all of the above are going to get work at some point. That's just going to be how it works out. I saw that Baseball HQ's Miami coverage guys have uh, these guys down for about 13% total of the starting pitcher innings not allocated to the top four, and that was before they signed Geo. So that'll probably uh, be split five ways rather than four. Somebody might pop out of there, but I don't think there's a betting play for it. Um, Alain DeLeonardis covers the National League East Ray in playing time tomorrow for BaseballHQ.com, and in his most recent column, he looked at catching in both Miami and Washington. He gave probable starter in Washington, Jan Gomes, a cautious endorsement. Yeah, he was referring to, uh, you know, a sort of nice little short season for Penn, for uh, Gomes last year. You know, he hit 284 with four homers, you know, a smattering of RBIs and runs and, you know, just 119 plate appearances. But, um, you know, that doesn't sound like much, but, you know, when you correct for the 60-game season, that's an 18 home runs, 60 runs and RBIs with a 280 batting average. I mean, it, by this day and age for catchers, that's uh, borderline exciting. And, you know, he's also... 
long been a decent contact hitter. You know, he was up around the eighty percent contact level last year, which you know always sets you know always sets a nice BA four. And again, in the catcher pool, you know sometimes a BA four is all you can ask for. You can go out and find a two twenty or worse hitting you know Mike Zunino, Roberto Perez type catcher anytime you want, but somebody who can actually give you know you can have fairly fair confidence is at least going to hit over two fifty and not ruin your batting average is uh you know is appealing especially depending on your roster construction if you've you know gone and chased after a you know joe joey gallo or jorge soler type on your roster you don't want to have another another whiff machine so there are there are roster constructions where uh almost makes good sense alan also noted that the baseball forecaster cautions about uh, Jan Gomes not to buy into the big 2020 changes, and they cited uh, Gomes's QBAB score. What's the concern with his underlying fundamentals and batted balls? Yeah, so as a, rem- yeah, as a reminder, QBAB uh, measures exit velocity, launch angle, and the variability of launch angle to try to get a, a profile of where the batted balls go most often. Uh, Gomes is one of those guys who you know, sort of does one of those two things well. Uh, he, he has a very good uh, launch angle. He consistently... Um, you know, hits the ball in the uh, on the on the sweet launch angle, which is a you know, particularly good news going in that Nationals ballpark, which is a uh, sort of sneaky hitter's par- palace. So, uh, you know, good launch angle leads to the you know decent home run output you get there. But the flip side of that is his exit velocity has never been anything impressive. Uh, you know, he he kind of just nudged it up to 90 miles an hour last year, which is you know, getting into the neighborhood of average. Uh, but his hard-to-hit rate isn't very good, um, and so it's hard to keep that going. And that also raises the concern about the power if you're thinking about somebody who gets the ball in the air on, at a good angle fairly consistently but doesn't hit it particularly hard the first thing I think of is that it's somebody who might be impacted if this dead ball actually comes to pass this year. So a bit of a concern there. Uh, but, you know, put, put all this together with, you know, maybe questionable average-ish power in a decent batting average floor. And he's going after ADP pick 300. So after round 20, you know, it's a back-end catcher one or a pretty good catcher two in a mixed league. Alan called Jorge Alfaro in Miami an odd duck. <laughs> uh, what's that about? <laughs> I'm not sure. We'll have to ask Elaine. No, uh, <laughs> the, the story is that, uh, you know, he, he's sort of um, got the some raw components of what is an interesting skill set and some, some other holes and surprising places, too, for a catcher. Uh, you know, he hits the ball pretty hard. He's got a 96% exit velocity, which is 87th percentile. He's also pretty fast for a catcher by uh, by sprint speed, which is you know seventy five. He makes the seventy fifth percentile of all players, which sort of definitionally probably makes him one of the two fastest catchers of baseball. Uh, but what holds him back from unleashing any of those uh, hard hit skills, particularly, is that he just pounds the ball into the ground. You know, half the time in his career, uh, you know, he's got a fifty percent ground ball rate. Is uh, you know the launch angle com- component of the QBAB score is sort of the opposite of Gomes. You know, he runs F, F, D, D, F. You know, <laughs> if you're a teacher, you're like, okay, I get the point, right? <laughs> but the real bad news is when he's not pounding the ball into the ground, he's striking out. You know, he's got a career 63% contact rate, which means, you know, a you know some inordinate percentage of his ground ball, uh, of his at-bats are ending in either strikeouts or ground balls. And even if you're a fleet-footed catcher, that's not good news. 
No, and as we've talked about in the past, very low contact rates have this sort of follow-on impact of totally unproductive at-bats. That's why we like uh, higher contact guys for sure. But since becoming a number one catcher in Miami, Alfaro's 5 by 5 value has been, you know, 4 to $9 or so. What can we say about consistently not delivering negative value? Yeah, it, it's sort of a profile thing. Again, it's, it's a team construction thing. Like we were talking about with Gomes, you know, this is the other way you might go if you're chasing, you know, some cheap, looking, fishing for some cheap power weight in your draft and you've built up a batting average cushion rather than collecting a bunch of Joey Gallows and Jorge Soler's. Maybe you have, uh, you know, Jess McNeil and a couple of other, you know, Tim Anderson and a couple of those guys on your roster to give you a nice batting average floor. Then maybe you can speculate here. Uh, you know, ab- absorb some of the strikeouts that are going to come here in the low batting average, but you know, knowing that Alfaro will run into one every now and then, and you know, the, the fly ball rate and the power will you know pop you some home runs. The other thing that's interesting is as a youngish guy and a guy who really has no significant competition here, the backup catcher in Miami is a battle between Chad Wallach and Sandy Leone. And if I close my eyes, I can't picture either one of those guys with a batting average. It starts with a two. So, uh, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of competition for Alfaro here. So the other thing that props up his dollar value in the sort of consistent mid-single digits is playing time. You know, barring injury, you know, you should be able to pencil in, you know, a full catch of workload of 450 to 500 at bats and, you know, a dozen home runs or so and the accompanying RBIs and runs despite all of those ground balls, it adds up to a, a profile that's worth a couple of bucks and whether it fits your particular roster construction depends on what we were talking about earlier. And we should make clear when you're talking about those uh, other catchers in Miami, not having batting averages start with a two, you don't mean three. <laughs> I do not mean three. <laughs> in his starting pitchers buyer's guide at baseballhq.com, a columnist Stephen Nickrand looks at Lima targets for 2021. And for those who aren't familiar with the term, Ray, maybe need a little refresher. Quickly, what does a Lima target mean? Yeah, so this is probably uh, one of our oldest acronyms or one of the one, most successful ones that's most associated with Baseball HQ and Ron Chandler initially. You know, initially, Ron came up with this uh, back in... Oh, it was 1998 or 1999, I think. Uh, Lima stands for Low Investment Mount Aces. Ron came up with it. It also uh, is named after Jose Lima, a pitcher who fit the profile that initially defined the Lima criteria and led Ron to a couple of uh, expert leagues championships in the late 90s when Ron was uh, basically lapping the field with his analysis of pitching and Back in the uh, back in the dark ages, where uh, weekly stats were chiseled on stone tablets in USA Today every week, and the idea is you draft skills, not roles. Uh, you try to find guys who have underappreciated skills. When Ron introduced Lima, Ray, the standards were six strikeouts per nine, two strikeouts per walk command ratio, and 1.0 or less home runs per nine. Times and approaches have changed. HQ has raised the bars. What are the Lima standards now? Yeah, they get a little squishy, but generally we look for seven to seven and a half strikeouts per nine, a command ratio of two and a half strikeouts per walk, and home runs are you know, particularly tough to control in this day and age. But a expected home run rate of one point or less, with a you know a little bit of wiggle room on that, makes for a makes for a nice Lima filter if you're uh, trying to just boil your draft list down to a down to a smaller target list. 
And of course, you're perfectly free if you want to, to raise any or lower any of those ratios to suit your own particular league needs, especially in keeper leagues. Sometimes you have to be a little flexible. I have two questions though. Can we expect the Lima thresholds will be adjusted to align with Baseball HQ's move to strikeout percentages, walk percentages, and strikeouts minus walks? or to incorporate more advanced metrics like whiff rates, which are often viewed as even better indicators of true skill than outcome-based metrics? Yes, for sure. Uh, I've been sort of eyeballing that myself. We haven't written up anything formal about it, but I need to do that. Um, I've sort of in my head been using a... 8% 8% walk rate, 16, uh, 24% strikeout rate, and which leaves a 16% K minus BB as sort of a, you know, not exactly league average, but a tick above league average, good number for a starting pitcher sort of number. And again, you know, the percentages give you even more room to wiggle around your Lima filters. You can use different, you know, it, it makes it even more possible to use a different set of filters in a mixed league than a uh, than an only league to, uh, to kind of target the pool of available pitchers and get to the point where you're looking at, you know, that a subset of them, the top third or whatever have you to give you a, give you a short list of draft targets. Last season, Stephen Nickran touted starters like Dylan Bundy, Luis Castillo, Denelson Lamette, and Freddie Peralta, all pretty successful. They delivered good results for their values in 2020. Let's look at some of the National Leaguers Stephen has identified this season, starting with Philadelphia right-hander Zach Eflin. Yeah, Evelyn's interesting in a number of ways. He made, he makes all of uh, he he made Stevens filters here. He's also there, there's some decent reason to think that uh, he's not the same guy he's been for a longer time because he made some pitch mix changes too. Um, in 2020, he was very successful. Uh, you know, he had 155 BPV and a ERA in the mid threes that was fully supported by a 3.45 xERA, and that was even amid a uh, you know an elevated hit rate BABIP that. Um, uh, that kept him from actually realizing that 345 XERA. You know, that it's a, the BABIP that kept the ERA up further. Um, he had some problems with left-handers uh, with 906 OPS against versus lefties. So that sort of sounds like you know, lefties tattooed him. But at the same time, he managed to you know get a, put up a three and a half uh, command, three and a half strikeout to walk ratio against them. So he was doing something right. And uh, yeah, so, so Stephen boiled all that down and sort of said, you know. Valid mid rotation starter here, SP three SP three type with maybe SP two upside if the uh, if he holds the skill gains and the, uh, the the luck factors correct. And if that pitch mix change also has uh, the positive impact that so many of ch- pitch mix changes have been having with starting pitchers, that's an interesting angle as well. Uh, we talked earlier about the Miami rotation, Ray and Stephen also cited right hander Eliezer Hernandez. Yeah, and he's interesting to me because he's sort of the um, fourth duckling in that Miami rotation we were talking about earlier. It seems that all of Sixto Sanchez and Sandy Alcantara and Pablo Lopez all have a lot of buzz this preseason. And Hernandez, you know, may lag behind them a little bit, but maybe not as much as the market is discounting him. You know, he's also very solid in 2020, uh, ended the year hurt, but um, in a micro sample of 26 innings he did hang up 179 bpv which is you know an eye-popping number even for a reliever let alone a, a starter uh your tons of swinging strikes first pitch first pitch strike numbers were great shredded left-handed batters you know a 28 percent uh came on his bb there so he didn't have the sort of efflin problem of being platooned to death so effective against both sides there's a lot of reason to think that 
he could be super effective here. You know, Steven Tadden is a premium Lima target. And I think really the, you know, the durability or how many innings you're going to get out of him is probably the biggest question for this year. Cause there are, you know, all questions to me about stuff and effectiveness against both batters, both sides of the plate have been answered. Yeah. The question here is youth and experience uh, and how, how Miami's going to manage those innings, especially if they fall off the pace and really don't need to f- to force this guy out there every fifth day to pile up a huge number of innings. That, that could be a concern. Two San Diego pitchers made Stevens' list. I've seen <laughs> I've seen people recommend drafting the entire San Diego rotation in your fantasy drafts, and it's actually not a terrible idea. Uh, Joe Musgrove and Chris Paddock. What's going on with those two guys? Musgrove is had significant breakout appeal for a couple of years now. Uh, you know, his September in in 2020 was just off the charts. You know, a 231 BPV, he does everything you want him to do. He keeps the ball on the ground. He pounds the strike zone. He gets the strike, the swinging strikes. You know, health is another concern there. Uh, but, you know, there's a 350 ERA, maybe 200 strikeouts if he gets enough innings uh, there as upside here. And that's for a guy who's, I think just now maybe nosing into the top 10 rounds of drafts. I mean, we liked him a lot when he was saddled with, uh, you know, when he was still in Pittsburgh you know, earlier this offseason, we were still touting him as a breakout candidate. And now we don't have to worry about him hanging up a 350 ERA and going, you know, six and 14, which might've been what happened in Pittsburgh. And Paddock? You know, he's post-hype. You know, he was a darling a couple of years ago when he first jumped to the majors right out of uh, single A, if I remember correctly, or maybe he had a cup of coffee in double A, but that was it. Uh, and it was pretty good that first year, but has regressed since then. There's been a lot of criticism about him being a two-pitch guy and maybe not having enough variability in his arsenal to uh, to really thrive at the big league level. Uh, but his skills were still very good, 135 BPV that was actually pretty level with his rookie season. Uh, and he also mixed in a ground ball tilt too, which could moderate the, uh, you know, the gopheritis that I th- is really what undermined him last year. And I think that, um, that ground ball tilt came as a result of not a new pitch, but I think, uh, you know, he changed the angle on his cutter or slider or one of those, uh, you know, stat cast spin rate type adjustments that, uh, seems like it made a difference. And I actually saw a quote from him this spring that said he's, uh, he's doubling down on looking at those metrics to try to, uh, try to, uh, polish up his arsenal too. So there you go. All right, Ray, thanks for filling in for Nick this week with the National League News. Let's go over now to your usual stomping grounds in the American League. And since we're talking about Stephen Nickran's Lima starter picks, how about a couple of Yankee right-handers, Davey Garcia and Domingo Herman? Yeah, so in a Yankee rotation that is, you know, has a lot of question marks in it, you know, it's, it's, I guess the best way to put it is they've stocked up on every kind of question mark. They've got youth, they've got injury rehabbers, they've got old guys who aren't durable. You know, there's, you, you, there, there's almost no question that the Yankees are going to use nine or ten starters at various points this year. So Garcia and Germán are going to get their opportunities. Uh, you know, Garcia in his rookie debut last year, he showed an ability to throw strikes and miss bats, which are good foundational skills. He hung up 124 BPV. He shredded right-handed hitters with a 25% K minus BB. You know, had some more struggles against lefties, but that's uh, that's stuff that might come with a little more experience. His ADP is around south of 300. It's in round 22 or something like that. And that's, uh, you know, again, you might only be looking at pick a number 80, 100, 120 innings here, but there's a good chance they're going to be pretty good innings. Uh, German, 
you know, there are all sorts of questions about him getting his head in the right place. You'll remember he missed all of uh, the 2020 season with a uh, sort of a variety of personal related issues. And there have even been some statements this off season that, uh, you know, raised some further questions, not just publicly, but even his teammates have said concerns about where his head is and his commitment level. Uh, but there's a lot, there was a lot to like back in 2019 when he, sort of came out of nowhere and really anchored the Yankees rotation for a lot of that season. Uh, you know, 114 BPV in 2018 and held that together in 2019. Good swing strike rate, pounds the strike zone. You know, he's another one that gopheritis is a problem. Uh, but, you know, some of that is going to be what happens when you make a living in Yankee Stadium. But, you know, good team context other than that and another good Wee mustache for, you know, much like Garcia, however many innings you get out of him. Stephen also called a former Yankee right-hander Michael Pineda, now of Minnesota, and I quote, one of the best Lima targets in the game heading into 2021. Strong praise. Uh, what's the love for Michael Pineda all about? Yeah, he has long been sort of a darling of the uh, of, of, of the Lima approach or our skills-based analysis. Uh, and sort of the downside of that is for years, his um, actual results fell short of what we thought the uh, the this, this skills foretold for him. And, it, you know, at some point you, that happens long enough that, um, you know, people start to think that that's some sort of hidden shortcoming or something that our metrics aren't capturing. But, you know, let's be clear, the metrics are very good. He's had 100 plus BPV in every one of his major league seasons. He's got a 14.9 swing strike rate, which is a lead for a starting pitcher. Um, the, uh, he's another one where the home run ball has really been the undoing of him. Uh, but, you know, getting over the Minnesota um, seems like he has you know, made a little progress with that and he's getting a few more ground balls, uh, which is another good way to keep the ball in the park. And last year was, you know, a tiny sample, but it was one, one interesting thing was after a long, long underperforming his skills last year, he actually outperformed them. He got his ERA down into the, into the little threes. He had never hung up a, uh, he hadn't hung up a sub four ERA since a, cup of coffee in 2014 so that might be a case where he's actually getting the uh starting to get the results that we have long thought his skills merited and you know what uh, Wes Johnson is the pitching coach in Minnesota I don't know how much attention a lot of fantasy managers pay to that kind of thing but Wes Johnson's a really good pitching coach he came out of the college ranks rather than uh, out of you know being a past nat a big league pitcher himself and he has really had an impact on every pitcher who's turned up in Minnesota. Yeah, and you know, we—it's really something we got to pay a lot of attention to. That you know, you would think that in a couple of years, every team will have figured this out, and well, at least the majority of teams will start you know figuring out how to make the micro adjustments to pitchers to sort of weaken you know to sort of blunt their weaknesses and accentuate their strengths. But the teams that are better at it now are teams that we certainly want to be targeting. And you know, Minnesota's on that list, Cleveland's on that list, the Reds are on that list. You know, there's you know there there are several of them, but. But uh, for sure, Minnesota makes the cut. Back in the day, uh, Ray Searage was in Pittsburgh, and he was kind of the yep. prototype for all of this. And then all of a sudden, he wasn't. <laughs> you know, so you got to be <laughs> careful. It's not a life, <laughs> uh, a life it's, achievement. It didn't work anymore, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
In the speculator column, which is your old bailiwick, uh, Ryan Bloomfield wrote recently about players being adversely affected by recency bias from 2020 and how that could be possibly setting up some bargains because people are over overthinking the recency bias. Before we get to Ryan's picks, Ray, we know recency bias is something we should avoid or at least be aware of when we're thinking about players, but really isn't it doubly true when the recent is 60 games worth of data? Boy, I'm not sure it's doubly true. I might, for me, it might actually be triply true. I mean, this is, I, I've, it's just appearing on the site this weekend, but I'm writing my annual uh, straight draft guide and I, I am banging this, uh, banging this point like the Russian ambassador with a shoe on the desk at the UN. Um, this is, this is like the hill I'm dying on for drafts this year is that it, it just amazes me looking at the ADPs, uh, how much discount you can get on the guys who had bad 60 game stretches last year. And in some cases, you know, bad 30 game stretches because it was bad 30 games and then they ended up on the DL or whatever. Um, it, you know, I, I, you're, you had Gene McCaffrey on for the first segment of the year and, you know, he's a big, uh, last year's bums guy. Uh, that's sort of his tagline that has, uh, pervaded the entire industry. And it's always a valid strategy and a place to find some profit in the draft pool every year. And I think it's, absolutely the most fertile ground for finding undervalued assets this year. I am all over it. Last year's bums, especially by established players, if it's, if it's a last year's bum who is a rookie or a second year guy, there's a certain amount of natural variability that we expect. But when we get to veterans, you have a guy like J.D. Martinez, the Boston DH, one of the afflicted from a poor 2020, but between a general rebound and his regained access to video between at-bats, not to be overlooked, uh, how much of a bounce do you think we can bet on for J.D. Martinez in 2021? I think this is a great place to uh, chase some of that last year's bums profit. You know, th- as you say, there was a long-established track record before 2020. Martinez was... Uh, Pounding the ball for three straight years between, uh, you know, a couple, couple of those when he arrived in Boston, you know, 300 average and 35 home runs, a couple years running. Uh, and then last year, two, uh, two batting average fell all the way to 213. And I think he had eight home runs, which prorated to, you know, 20 in a full season. Definitely looks nothing like the three or four seasons that came before it. Um, better yet, the underlying 2020 skills were actually right in line with the peak years. Uh, His expected power number was 150, which is still elite, still right where his history has been. He just got creamed by a crazy low home run per fly and hit rate. So it was an unlucky 60 games. If we had seen the other 100 games last year, it probably would have corrected and we'd be treating Martinez as a stable power source rather than a discount rebound candidate. So, you know, to be fair, the, you know, he's not outfield eligible to start the year it's not really clear whether he will pick that up in season or not uh so that you know there are some roster construction issues that come along with him but you know this is still in my eyes a stable four category stud and i'm so i'm giving out the mulligan on 20 on 2020 another hitter who has fallen out of favor in this same regard yankee shortstop glaber torres what's the profile there he was a guy that coming into 2020 we were probably a little below the market on just because his 2019 was so good. And we were projecting a little bit of regression. I bet we didn't project, you know, the kind of regression we got, you know, he had three home runs and 136 at bats. That's what 14 in a full season, which is way off from uh, 62 combined home runs in 2018 and 19. I, I correct me if I'm wrong, Patrick, but I think 59 of those 62 came against the Orioles. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. 
But, um, and you know, he was hurt last year. So, I mean, that's another reason to be given out a mulligan. Uh, he got hit by, hit on the elbow by a pitch and he missed a couple of weeks with quad and hamstring issues. So it might just be that, you know, he was just never right physically for more than a couple of games in 2020. But you know, snapping back to those 2018 and 19 skills give us a much better idea of who this guy really is rather than, you know, discounting him because of 138 six at bat gut of a season. Um, so there's a there's a longer term pedigree track record, and obviously this remains a good and productive lineup that Torres is going to be hitting at the top or in the middle of, and a lot of it bats, a lot of runners on base in a good hitting park that still supports that power. Uh, you know, all you have to do is sort of close your eyes, pretend those 136 at bats never happened, and remember who you think who you thought Glaber Torres was at this time last year, and that's still who he is. In playing time tomorrow, Jock Thompson covers the American League West. Jock's your predecessor as the AL Beat reporter here on Baseball HQ Radio, of course. And Jock looked at a lot of pitching situations, and one of them turned out to be fairly timely. He looked at Houston, who lost left-handed starter Framber Valdez to a broken finger on his pitching hand. Jock had filed his story, as these things go, just hours before the injury was announced. But his comments might be even more relevant as a result because he had already called the Astros rotation intriguing with plenty of questions. Yeah, it's one of those things where you look at this rotation and individually a bunch of the guys are intriguing, which I think is sort of what Jock was getting at. You know, you can look at any of them and see reasons that, to be excited about them, but you sort of put them together in a group of five and if you look at them as a body, you're sort of like, well, gee, a lot has to go right here. You know, there's a you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of sort of faith and finger crossing involved, and finger crossing being a bad pun for what happened to Framber with a uh, now a fractured figure that's going to keep him out for a while and put even more pressure on the rest of this rotation that you know is definitely you could say a lot of things about it, but it is definitely not deep. So we have a couple of guys, Forrest Whitley and Luis Garcia. What did Jock say about those two fellows? You know, Willie's the pre- premium prospect here. It's, you know, he, he, you almost forget he's a prospect because we've been waiting on him for so long. Uh, you know, he, he did not appear in the majors last year. Uh, he hasn't, you know, he's been hanging around the upper levels of the minors as sort of the, you know, de facto best pitching prospect in the game or one of them for, you know, like three years running now. But he had a PED suspension in there. He had, uh, you know, a bunch of injury woes, the shoulder, the lat, the elbow. And then, you know, in between, when he actually got on the mound in between all of those things, you know, his control uh, in particular came and went, which is probably related to lack of consistent work as much as anything. But, you know, three years ago, this was, you know, one of the premium pitching prospects in the game. And there hasn't been anything significantly wrong with him that the that, that would cost him that title. It's just been a, a whole bunch of speed bumps since then. And now with, with this injury, it really looks like he's going to get an opportunity sooner or later. Finally, we've been waiting for him to get an opportunity in Houston for, you know, for some time now. And then Garcia, you know, kind of flew through the minors last year more as uh, Hey, he was healthy and the Astros needed pitchers. Uh, so it wasn't, didn't necessarily reflect a vote of confidence in his readiness for the job, but you know, he had a functional arm, and they needed a functional arm. So, uh, and, and you know, to his credit, he didn't get knocked around. He, he had one start, total of twelve innings. I think he allowed four runs. That's a three ERA. He 
you know, he didn't embarrass himself or anything. He had a uh, some decent swing K numbers and, you know, a, that micro sample. He didn't look overmatched, I guess is the bottom line. But, you know, given what we were saying earlier about a minor league season at some point this year, you know, he certainly looks like somebody who needs at least a couple of months in the minors to, uh, you know, to, to refine the skill set before he becomes a fixture in the majors. Jock also looked at the rotation in Oakland. It looks like questions there as well. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of talent there too, but there, you know, questions about how guys are going to line up and how many, how much work they can handle. Uh, you know, Jesus Lizardo is the nominal top of the rotation and, you know, has electric stuff and, you know, is being drafted pretty high and could have number two, number three type starter fantasy value sort of in that sub ace tier after the top 12 or 15 pitchers. But, you know, the big question there is we don't know how many innings he can carry. There's Frankie Montas behind him, who was terrific in 2019, at least for half a season. Uh, and then he got suspended after that and then got knocked around in 2020. And now I got he was on the COVID list uh, this winter or early in camp. So, you know, remains to be seen whether that's something that sets him back. But, you know, again, for somebody that, you know, especially when you've got a, uh, a number one starter who, you know, you have concerns about him carrying the innings workload, you want the number two to be able to, you know, take the ball every day for six innings. And we still don't know whether Montas can do that either. And then behind him, I mean, Chris Bassett, who had a terrific year last year, but a 229 ERA, but it was not at all supported by about a four and a half expected ERA. And some of the analysis that we did in the offseason said that he faced one of the easiest schedules of anybody last year in terms of just drawing the bad teams and the uh, you know divisional s- schedule all the time. So I've got some concerns there. Um, I mean, the, it, it, I can't believe we're talking about him this way, but, you know, sort of boring veteran Sean Manaya is now the um, workhorse or anchor in this rotation, which are really not words anybody has ever used to describe Sean Manaya. Well, the other workhorse is Mike Fires. They re-signed him to to basically return to the same rotation he was in last year and pretty much to play the same role. He's going to eat innings. Yeah, and somebody's got to do it when you're, you know, when you've got Luzardo, Montas, and Bassett, you know, as your sort of one, two, three, then you need some dependable veterans. It's not unlike what we were talking about in, uh, was it Baltimore last week, where they've got a, you know, Matt Harvey and a couple of other veterans there to, uh, you know, make sure that th- th- their job is to make sure that, you know, when the rookie, when the, when the valuable kids are not ready to pitch, that they can go soak up some innings on the mound. Well, considering the possibility of poor performance and injury uh, in the movies, this is where someone would say help is on the way, and we'd hear a cavalry bugle. Exactly, or as or, or as they say on uh, some shows, narrator help was not on the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, who is on the way? Uh, it seems the cavalry in this case is three guys with rusty muskets all arriving on stretchers. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's um, you know some some super intriguing talent, but. You know, not, not exactly filed under reliable or knowing that they will come charging over the hill exactly when the bugle sounds. You know, the top top on the list is uh, left-hander AJ Puck, who has been, you know, sort of linked with Luzardo all the way through the uh, their, their rise through the A's system as sort of the next uh, core of their contending rotation but puck has had even more injuries and setbacks than luzardo had uh you know he was shut down in spring training 1.0 last year i believe with a uh what they thought was a significant uh, shoulder injury he seems to have recovered from that and is now back on uh track to 
be stretched out as a starter and maybe be ready to join the rotation to start the season. I'm kind of in a, you know, I believe in when I see it mode on that, just because uh, having owned puck in a couple of dynasty leagues, anytime you get excited about him being close, just, uh, you know, he steps on another banana peel. Uh, <laughs> and that, to me, that's the, to me, that's the track record until further notice. But uh, one of these days, maybe he'll prove us wrong and actually show up. Um, Dalton Jeffries is another one who's had significant injuries. He's working back from Tommy John surgery. He was drafted um, by the A's in 2016, and he's only got a total in five years of 100 professional innings, which is, I mean, you could do the math on that. That's not a lot of work at all. Uh, 79 of those came in 2019 between high A and double A and reminded everybody why they were excited about him. He looked like a strike thrower. He had a good changeup, you know, in mid threes. ERA, but a 94 to nine strikeout to walk ratio. I mean, that's pretty good. That's at least a back back or middle of the rotation kind of guy. Um, just Jeffries now looks like he's probably ahead of Puck just because he's coming off a, a healthy winter when Puck is still coming back from that uh, early 2020 surgery. There's James Caprellian too, who is a former Yankee prospect who just came over, but um, you know was you know at times. Uh, you know, highly regarded in the Yankee system, but again, has gotten, you know, virtually no work due to repeated injuries. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's curtain number one, curtain number two, curtain number three. One of these guys probably, you know, it may very well find the fountain of health and offer a hundred high quality innings this year. But I, I think you're, um, your guess is as good as mine, which one it's going to be. Yeah, I think curtain number one is going to be an emu. Curtain number two is going to be a, <laughs> you know, an old mule. And curtain number three is going to be some kind of rusted out old jalopy. <laughs> you know, one of these. Does that make me Monty Hall? <laughs> That's right, yeah. Let's make a deal, yeah. It's not an inspiring situation in Oakland uh, if these are the immediate names to watch. Ray, we might not have the Universal DH, but this week anyway, we have the Universal News coverage. Thanks a million for helping us out on both sides of the league divide. Glad to be here, Patrick. Can't get enough at this time of year. So anytime you need me to pitch a doubleheader, I will ice my arm and be ready. Ray Murphy is co-general manager and a columnist at Baseball HQ. Next up, it's our HQ Spotlight segment where we talk some baseball with one of the staff analysts and writers at BaseballHQ.com. We'll have Matt Beagle, who writes about Stratomatic, coming to the plate in just a second. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Rotisserie Gaming, analyst Greg Fishwick debuts a new feature about running your fantasy league, starting this week with how to deal with losing league members, position eligibility rules after 2020's short season, and managing the draft during our continued COVID distancing. In research, ace Eric Floramonti looks at the predictive value of HQ's new QBAB metric in very short samples. And in the Market Pulse, analyst Matt Cederholm continues his voyage through the positions, this week looking at the outfield pool. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at Baseball HQ all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, 
Injury analysis in the big hurt and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers you can use throughout the season. So add it all up. You have expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our HQ Spotlight, where we introduce one of the staff analysts and writers at BaseballHQ.com. And it's my pleasure to welcome Matt Beagle, who writes about Stratomatic. Matt, of course, used to be our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. So these are words I haven't said in quite some time. Matt, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's great to be back, Patrick. I missed you so much. Missed the format. Just life has been so busy. But uh, baseball's going on. And you have a growing family? Family's been doing great. Kids are growing up. Uh, My oldest is 6'6". He's massive. So he'll be playing some D3 baseball somewhere near you if you're in the Northeast. And he's done all his showcases and ready to go this fall. That sounds fantastic. Uh, Going to be a prospect that we're talking about here on Baseball HQ Radio one of these years, I'm sure. Uh, we'll see. Got to add some velo to that fastball first. Well, plenty of time for velocity to come up, I think. Uh, how many leagues have you drafted so far, Matt? Well, not counting my retro 1981 strat draft. I've uh, done seven NFBCs and five strat drafts with a few more to come. Have you seen any trends, first of all, in the uh, NFBC drafts? Uh, interesting. I, I think there's some things that are always true. Everybody always overvalues youth. They assume players are going to grow, and we know that doesn't happen uh, linearly. There are busts. Uh, Maybe Vlad Guerrero finally breaks out, but he's cost you the last two years if you invested a high draft pick in him. So you see a lot of the overvaluing of youth. I I think there's the fallacy of starting pitching, I've always called it, and that is where, I mean, this year aces are more valuable than ever. But I think a lot of people look at what won last year and they see great pitchers won the tournament and they try to duplicate that without realizing it's very risky that those pitchers often don't come through. We've been very fortunate the last few years having a few starting pitchers who have been repeating their success. But Shane Bieber, for example, is a good pitcher, but I don't know he's a Cy Young Award winner over a whole season. We've just seen, you know, two thirds or a third of a season. So can he really come back and be a number one pick? worth you know player i don't know um so those are two trends i think closers are really interesting uh instead of being a closer run like we've always seen there's a couple really great ones and uh then they're kind of interspersed throughout the draft so you don't have to panic Uh, you can pick those closers up in different rounds in different parts of the draft depending on how much you want to invest in it um so that's the trends that i've seen mostly here in the drafts that I've done so far. One of the things you mentioned, uh, Shane Bieber had a really tremendous year last year. And of course, the question is between the fact that he only pitched a third of a season and something that uh, other people have mentioned to me that I think bears repeating is the quality of competition in that central zone or central region that Bieber was pitching in last year was very poor. And the same goes for Trevor Bauer, the Cy Young winner in the National League, pitching, pitching in Cincinnati. So when, uh, when we think about the full season to come, it's not just a question of 32 starts versus 9 or whatever it was last year, or 13 or whatever it was last year, but 
the quality of the opposition in those 32 starts is going to be on average and at higher, but also in particular higher in certain starts. I mean, it's quite a difference to go up against Kansas City three or four times versus going up against, you know, the Yankees. Uh, new Toronto lineup's got a lot of uh, power in it. There's lots of good teams that they these guys didn't have to face last year. I agree and I disagree. I agree that the central divisions were weaker, but I think if you look at the AL East, it wasn't the same as the past uh, power-wise. I think if you look at the AL West, it wasn't that fantastic. It wasn't highly stacked on the top. I think the NL East was, was difficult and will be even more difficult this year. So I think there's some truth to what you say, but I'd, I'd be careful not to overdo it. I, I think, you know, he still faced the White Sox in a hitter's park that was an up-and-coming offensive team. The Twins obviously had a great offense. And in the NL, uh, you know, the Cubs certainly had – they didn't play well, but if you look at the talent on their team, they certainly had a great set of hitters that he had to go through each time. The Reds were geared for, for Bear. They had uh, bolstered their roster. Milwaukee was good. So I think I think it is a factor, but I don't think it's as big a factor as some people are making it. And uh, what have you noticed uh, doing strat drafts so far this year? Um, strat drafts, it's interesting because of the odd – the smaller set, you're seeing more skewed cards. Uh, we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but um, splits are very important, lefty-righty splits in Strat. So with smaller sample sizes, you see more extreme results from pitchers that may have had a good month or two or good 13 innings, which we've seen that with all kinds of players, whether they're good or not, can have a good run. So you see a lot more depth in the bullpen and in pitching than you probably have in the past. There's a lot more relievers out there in the drafts that are good relievers because the the rule of large sample sizes hasn't caught up in that the hitters didn't catch up to their change up or they happen to have uh, a few good outings and didn't have that one blow up. They got saved by a fielder, uh, got out of a jam. And so you don't see uh, as many blow ups. There's some really bad cards for the people who did blow up because they didn't have as many innings to bring it back to normalcy. But you have a lot more relievers who are sort of also rands that happen to pitch nine good innings or 12 good innings. And uh, so there's more relievers available than ever, uh, which I think is a key to winning. Normally, this year, there's lots of them. So every team's going to have a pretty good bullpen. Well, it is the 60th anniversary of Stratomatic, and you've been writing about the game for BaseballHQ.com. And before we get into details, what is it that you like about Strat that's kept you in it for how long have you been in it now? Uh, I started 1975, so it'll be 45 years I've been playing now. Uh, what I like about it compared to rotisserie, which I also do, obviously, with the NFBC, but is you are the manager. You set the lineups. You determine when to bring the pitchers in. You pick when to steal or pinch hit. So it's kind of like a chess match ongoing with baseball stats all game long. As you match up bullpens to pinch hitters, uh, you look at a pitcher who is great on the surface and maybe you can exploit something in the splits with your lineup to really uncover it. And I think it's amazing how much the money ball and baseball has evolved from Stratomatic in that Strat players were the first ones to really look at on-base percentage because when you looked at the card, non-outs were capitalized. So if you saw a guy who walked a lot, Mike Hargrove, for example, you knew he was more valuable even though his batting average was the same. We didn't call it on-base percentage. We just said he makes less outs. And if you saw a pitcher who had good control, you knew he was more likely to be a better pitcher in the future because he did have good control because he got more outs on his card. He didn't give up those walks. We also uh, were doing bullpenning long before uh, it was popular now. Middle relievers 
as a ratio basis are usually better than starters. And so you could exploit that in Stratomatic. And we did lots of lineup experimentation, batting your best hitter first to get more at bats. Um, you know, righty lefty matchups to minimize how your opponent can bring in bullpen guys to, to limit you. And most importantly, defense matters. And in rotisserie, there's just no way to, to account for that. But Stratomatic has defense both on range, double play frequency, uh, strength of arms, and then runners then are rated on how fast, how well they are as a base runner. So it's really a much more thorough, complete enjoyment of the sport. At Baseball HQ, you looked at the hitter cards and pitcher cards in separate articles, and platoon splits, you mentioned already, play a much bigger role than they do in Roto and in points fantasy-based formats, but how does that platoon split work in detail when you're talking about strat? Well, it's interesting. The newest uh, fantasy is daily, and splits are incredibly important there. So the old Stratomatic is offering a new... Uh, insight into platoon splits in the daily fantasy format. So if you have a player who you want a player in Stratomatic generally who has even splits that you can't bring in a lefty to shut them down in late innings or a right-hander, you can analyze each person, whether they're good against lefties or righties. And then the other manager can exploit that and try to neutralize who you have. So for example, Freddie Feeman, although he's not bad against lefties, he's not real good against them. He can get on base with no power. So you can take his home run power away by bringing in a lefty. Well, that sounds normal. Anybody would know that. But as you know, that Mike Trout in his career is much worse against lefties than righties. So if you can find a left-handed bullpen ace who's better against right-handers, and there are lots of them, or even just good against right-handers, you can neutralize Mike Trout somewhat. He's still going to be Mike Trout, but his splits historically are much better against right-handers than lefties. So it gives you that extra understanding of the game in exploiting the splits each year. And you can exploit them while you're playing your head-to-head matchups with your opponents by looking through who they, who you anticipate they're going to be putting into their lineups and then try to offset it with your lineup, but they're thinking that you're going to do that, so there's that kind of cat-and-mouse game going on. And that's what makes it fun. The last four innings, particularly of a Stratomatic game, uh, is the, are the most satisfying because you, you have the bullpen and pinch hitting matchups. You can bunt and hit and run and steal, which aren't as prevalent as unless you're playing a retro league as they are a current league. But there are still guys who can hit and run, uh, guys who can bunt. And if you have a person, an, a lefty, who doesn't hit lefties at all, maybe you can hit and run them over. Maybe you can bunt them. So some of the old-time managerial strategies do come back to play even in the modern game. Do the modern cards even have bunts on them? There's so few. Yes, they do. Yep. There are, there are very, much fewer A-rated, which is the top-rated bunter, as in the past, and very few top-rated hit-and-run guys, but there are some. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes it's someone who's so good you don't want to do it anyway, but especially if you still use a pitcher, they do uh, have bunting ratings on them, and that becomes very important. And that's what makes the game fun, is that you really see the complete player, the strengths and weaknesses, and as a manager, when you feel like you're backed into a corner, I won a couple leagues one year, uh, suicide squeezing against Clayton Kershaw. His card was so good, you couldn't get anything off of him. But if I have a pitcher up against him who's an A-bunner and a runner on third, I can squeeze him home. Uh, the odds would be about 42%. And I'll take that odd any day compared to just getting a strikeout, a pitcher who's going to strike out. Yeah, because so, the 42% doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's 42% outcome of that versus a 70% outcome that this guy's going to either ground out weekly or strike out or basically do nothing useful. 
Exactly. So it adds so much more strategy to the game and it makes you really understand the difficulty of managerial decisions who are, they're being made real time with everyone watching with the book, bring in a lefty against a lefty. Well, you'd never bring in a lefty to face Mike Trout in real life. Maybe Joe Madden could get away with it or Tony Lewis, someone who's known for being separate metric. But if it doesn't work, you're going to get lambasted in the media. But in Stratomatic, you can really use those matchups and feel free to minimize the chances that you're going to get beat and maximize the chances you're going to win. Now, you mentioned that uh, defense counts in Strat, which it doesn't in most Roto and Fantasy-type formats. Uh, what is the role that defense plays, not just in player value, but also in how you organize your cards and how you can play the game? What role does defense play in those things? So, first of all, Stratomatic rates each person from a 1 to 5 value, 1 being a gold glover, a 5 being someone who rarely plays the position. Uh, and that's sort of their range rating and the frequency maybe of a double play for an infielder. They also rate you on error frequency. And for outfielders and catchers, they rate the strength of your throwing arm. And about 15% of balls in play involve where you have to check the defensive rating of the player. Uh, and that doesn't mean a five is always going to give up a hit, but most of the time they will. A one never gives up a hit when you check them, but sometimes they'll make an error. So it's about 15% of balls in play will involve the defensive player. And uh, so the old timers really value that and they can work out the numbers and say, you want the best defensive team. That's going to happen a lot more than uh, the hitter gets the hit. But personally, I find that it's a lot easier to acquire a, a two, a, a good defender, not a great defender who can't hit than it is to acquire a good hitter. So I tend to minimize defense because, and then bring in a defensive replacement if I get ahead as opposed to playing a real banjo-hitting shortstop just to get the defense. Uh, many people in Stratomatic disagree with that, and that's what makes the game fun, is there's different ways to win. I've won both ways. I've had gold-glove defensive teams. I've had horrible defensive. I had Brian Harper catch one year, who had a horrible arm, and I lost in the World Series on a throwing error, so maybe that was justice. But his offense was so good that uh, I was willing to take that risk. Because even if the person's defensive rating comes up, unless they're horrible, they half the time don't give up a hit anyway. So I'm usually willing to take that risk more than other managers, but it's one of the many strategies that make the game fun. Looking at this year's cards, give us a couple of examples of position players who might have pretty good offenses, but who really suffer for their glove work. Well, uh, some of them will be Marcelo Zuna has been well-documented. He's been struggling in the outfield lately. Um, Nick Castellanos has never been a good fielder. Glaber Torres was a very good fielding second baseman, an adequate shortstop, but last year had a very difficult year fielding at the shortstop position. He's basically unplayable. Uh, Keston Hira of the Brewers are moving to first base now. The big question was, can he field at second base? And that's a very important defensive position in real baseball and in Stratomatic. Uh, Rafael Devers has been struggling with the glove. And even Corey Seager had a great offensive year. He's not a bad defender but he's just adequate range-wise and made a lot of errors, and that's why you hear talk of him moving to third base eventually. Um, so you have to watch, even though they're good names, uh, someone who might be a great Roto player may not be a great Stratomatic player. You have to decrease their value based on their fielding ability. On the flip side, how about a couple of position players who benefit from having plus scores for their glove work? Well, certainly DJ LeMay, who's a 
an excellent stratum or rotisserie player and stratonic player. And the fact he's got a great glove at multiple positions helps you. But guys like Colton Wong, JP Crawford, Nick Ahmed, they become very valuable in stratomatic with their glove work, even though they're not as valuable in rotisserie because you're getting those outs from your pitcher. Uh, Yadi Molina can control the running game has always been a great fielding catcher, of course. Um, so it, it's going to be the same gold glove players, but the weak hitting guys who are also good feelers do become very valuable in stratomatic. The other thing with feeling that's interesting is it affects the pitchers because if you're a pitcher with a very good fielding team, the 15% balls that go into play, if my team's all ones behind me, I'm not getting those outs. My defense is getting those outs for me. So my pitching card becomes a little worse. And if I'm pitching in Baltimore and I have horrible defenders behind me, my pitching card neutralized is actually better. I'm doing better, but I have horrible fielding behind me. So when I transfer that card to a different team that has very good fielders, the card is actually better because to normalize those stats, when you take the fielding into account, it's an inverse relationship. And therefore that uh, a pitcher with bad fielding behind them or in a bad hitter's ballpark, their card of Stratomatic is actually better because they have to adjust it for normalcy. You listed off your picks for the top players at each position, and these track fairly closely to regular fantasy in most instances. So let's talk about your value choices. They're kind of like sleeper picks or a guy a strat manager might want to bump up or little or a lot based on glove work and the other intangibles or tangibles in this case that affect strat differently than they do in roto. Why did you put a value tag on Boston catcher Kevin Plowecki? Well, I think the value tag was these are guys you can probably get reasonably cheaply uh you wouldn't have to pay an arm and a leg for them but they're very good contributors who can i get on the on the sly that will really contribute kevin pilecki played half the year he has 33 hit chances on each side which roughly equates to a 330 batting average not quite but similar 48 on base which means like a 475 on base average and a 60 ops which would be like a a thousand or whatever 1080 ops in our normal uh, settings be like a 600 slug from a catcher, he doesn't really have a lot of power, but he had got a lot of hits and drew a lot of walks. And so, and he's very even on his card. So he'd be a great catcher to get uh, pretty inexpensively because his career also ran. Yeah, that, that raises the question. Why is he a career also ran if he has these, these kinds of skills? Where's the disconnect between the strat card and reality? Uh, I think the biggest thing here is his on-base ability. He's always walked a lot. And while you think major league teams value that a lot, they really don't pay that much attention. They're still looking, you know, it, and the fans look at homers and injuries or homers and, and hits. So uh, it, it was a small sample size. He only had, I don't know, 70 at bats or something. So over the longer period of time, he's never proven he could do uh, a full-time job and keep it. He wasn't good as a, as an Indians backup, but he didn't get a lot of at bats either. So he happened to do poorly in those at bats. And last year for Boston, he did great in the at bats he got. I forgot that we have to take into account that the cards are based on the 60 game season. So that you mentioned that there's going to be this variance that affects players differently. Uh, what about first baseman, Jared Walsh of the angels? He had a 900 OPS against right-handed pitchers. So he's got incredible on base uh, power, total base power against right-handers. And so if you think you can bring in a lefty to neutralize him, he actually had hit 400 against lefties on the Stratomatic card. 
um, because he did well against lefties in real life. So you might be able to neutralize his power on the right side where he's not quite as good getting on base, but then you have an on base and hit issue where he's going to drive in runs with 40 hit chances against lefties. At third base, how about Detroit's uh, Heimer Candelario? Boy, this guy really emerged out of nowhere. He's an excellent fielder at third base. He can field at first base well. He's not going to hurt you there. He has lots of hit chances against both lefties and righties on base and power. He's better against left-handers. He really crushes them, but he's still good enough against righties. And with his glove at third base and first base, I actually have a team with Manny Machado and Freddie Freeman. I'm trying to trade him, and nobody will get nobody's interested. He doesn't have the big name recognition, so he's someone you can get reasonably cheaply, and he's had a very good Stratomatic card. At shortstop, he actually a multi-position eligibility guy in past years. I'm not sure how John Birdie of Miami fits into the position requirement, but at shortstop, you have him as a value play. So generally, in Stratomatic, they'll rate you at any position you play, but you have to have a few games there to get a good rating. If they just stick him there one time, you're going to get a five. But he actually played a lot of shortstop and did an adequate job. He gets on base a lot. Here's where the walks come in play again. He gets on base evenly both ways, about a 400 clip. And remember, when I say 400 clip on his card, half of the chances are going to be off the pitcher's card. So if someone's above average, their card is going to start to extrapolate that. Uh, to try to make sure that when you take half the chances off the pitcher's card, you get the actual stat in real life. So the better someone is, the more extreme their card gets. So John Birdie may have a 350 overall on base, but he's got to have a 400 on base on his card because the average pitcher may have a 300 on base chance on his card. So he's very good at getting on base against both righties and lefties, and he's adequate at shortstop, and he steals a lot of bases. He's got great speed on the base pass. Another speedster, uh, Ramel Tapia in Colorado. Yeah, he wasn't a big stolen base uh, threat, but he's fast, and that's really important. He really can take the extra base, score that run from second. Uh, he has 44 on base chances both ways, which equates about a 435 on base on his card. Most of those are hits. So he's always putting the ball in play, getting hits. He can drive in a run, even though you don't think of him that way. Because he has so many hit chances, he's going to be advancing the runners. He's not just a bunch of walks to get on base. He's actually hits. And if he wouldn't have played in Colorado, where the ballpark is very friendly to hits, his card would be even better. His card is actually tempered a bit because Colorado is an easy place to get singles as well as homers because of the spacious outfield there. And finally, Boston outfielder Alex Verdugo becomes a value play. Actually, he's getting some attention in Roto as well. Yeah, I think he, he's more of a value because um, he's not the huge superstar. In some positions, you're able to find hidden guys. Other guys, you had to go with someone a little more normal. And Verdugo's chase, he has 32 hits both ways, which again equates to a 320 batting average. He has excellent power against right-handers, and he's got on-base against lefties. So again, I want guys that are hard to neutralize. No matter what you do, they'll have something they, some way they can contribute to help you win. And Verdugo is a decent fielder as well. On the pitching side, how does valuation differ between strat values and the more common fantasy formats? Well, I think the first thing, as you mentioned in the beginning, is that we're looking backwards. We're using last year's statistics, so that, and there's no injury risk. You know what their usage is. Now, strat does have an injury feature you can turn on, but most leagues don't really use that. You want to make sure the players get their actual at-bats. Some people do actual replays game by game, and they use the injury factor more than a fantasy league does. But with no injury risk, now you know the the stats the pitcher's going to probably post. The odds are that Jacob deGrom's going to 
mimic what he did in real life. It doesn't always happen that way, especially if you have less teams, like a 20-team league versus a 30-team league. It doesn't happen that way because you have more good hitters in the lineup. And remember, the other manager can exploit your weakness, even if you're a good pitcher. So, uh, But you still overall know what the chances are going to be. You want pitchers that are balanced, again, that can't be exploited with a weakness. And the main difference, I think, is you want to really avoid the home run chances. You can't use the Jack Morris philosophy of, I'm ahead by six runs, so I'm just going to throw the ball over the plate. If I give up a solo home run, nobody cares. In Stratomatic, you don't know if that homer is going to be a a solo homer or a grand slam. So uh, the pitcher can't adjust themselves like they do in real life. So those uh, homers can be very costly. Justin Verlander didn't do as well last year as you might have thought he would in Stratomatic because he gave up a lot of home runs that were solo in real life. But in, uh, in a league where you have more concentrated rosters and more good hitters getting on base, there were less solo homers and more two-run two and three-run homers. Plus, as you said, the game context, uh, of course, Jack Morris is correct. Let's just get the ball over, get the, let them get themselves out. A guy hits a solo home run in the, you know, in the eighth inning of a, of a 6-1 game. But in Strat, that home run could take place with two guys on in the second inning. Yep, and that's what you can't control, and that's what makes it fun. It's randomized. It's not so um, so dominant that you know nothing unusual is ever going to happen. You know, the best pitchers can get bombed once in a while. Uh, you think I, last year was one of my worst years in the playoffs. I had very bad luck. I had great cards where there was very little chance. Or I had hitters with 8 and 10 home run percent chances that just didn't homer in that game. Uh, and that's what makes it fun is that each game is different and there's, it is randomly generated uh, with the odds stacked to the favor of the better players. I noticed in your starting pitcher assessments, you had a group you called aces high and there were three pitchers. We mentioned Shane Bieber. We mentioned Trevor Bauer. Hey, how about Tony Gonsolin? What's he doing in there? One of these things is not like the other. Well, and Gonsolin isn't an ace in real life, but in Stratomatic, if you look at his ratios, he only has a 9% chance of getting a hit off his card, both righties and lefties. That's like an 090 batting average on his card. He doesn't walk anybody. His control rate was 1.4 for Baseball HQ uh, folks used to using the control rate. He didn't allow any homers and very few extra base hits. And he was very even against righties and lefties. So he was the third best overall card because he only gave up singles with no walks, no homers, and he balanced those evenly. When you take all that into account, he is one of the best cards in the set. Now, he can't pitch quite as many innings. He can't pitch as deep into games, but he also can start or relieve, so you can use him either way. So in the playoffs, his relief rating is a three, so he doesn't get tired until he allows three base runners in the third inning he's pitching or gives up several runs. So you can use him for four or five innings very easily in relief, you know, which makes him a very, very important weapon, whether you start him or relieve him, because there's just no weakness you can exploit there. The Atlanta pitcher Ian Anderson is in a group with Jacob deGrom, Lucas Giolito, and other top guns in kind of the second-tier aces for strat purposes. This really feels like an artifact of the short season. Is that how Anderson got up there with deGrom? Short season is part of it, but the other part is the ratios. He had no hit chances. He dominated left-handed batters last night or last year. So he had no hits versus left-handed batters on his card. DeGrom has four. Uh, Anderson did walk some batters, but on base-wise, they're equal. And DeGrom had some homer issues against lefties. If you look closely at the at the splits, he did give up some homers against left-handers. Anderson did not. 
So Anderson's a backwards pitcher. He's a right-hander who's better against left-handed batters. And you know, most lineups against right-handed pitchers are going to have more left-handed batters normally. So having a backwards starting pitcher like that really works. And it works the other way too. A left-handed pitcher faces a lot more right-handed batters. So I look at the right-handed batter side of his card much more than how he does against lefties. Uh, Clayton Kershaw gives up homers against lefties, and he has the last couple years. You may not know that just watching him saying he's a great pitcher, but if you look at his splits, you find the left-handed hitters he does face are usually good ones, and they hit homers off of him at a very high rate. So there is a weakness in his card, but it's hard to find left-handed batters who are really good against left-handed pitchers. Normally, when he faces a lineup, it's going to be seven or eight or nine right-handed batters. So he still does very well in strat because he's got that backward split. So Anderson's short season, his numbers were fantastic. Uh, and look at him closely. I think he's someone being very underrated out there this year. A big difference in strat that you mentioned earlier is that a manager can use a non-closer in different situations. Relief pitching in general is much more pliable than it tends to be the way major league managers use their, their staffs. I remember talking with you about this in years past. Was there not a backlash that resulted in strat adjusting its rules to require established closers, for want of a better term, be put into those ninth inning situations? How did that work? You're exactly right, Patrick. Throughout the 70s and into the 80s, um, you could use any position. They didn't have a closer factor. There was not a clutch hitting or a closer, a clutch pitching type factor. And so you could use any bullpen pitcher to use uh, as your closer. You just looked at the ratios. So you had some very unusual guys getting lots of saves. Strat wants to be realistic, so they created the closer rating. Not every league uses it, but most of them do. And that uh, says when the game's within a run, or there's a tying run at second base. You they look at they have a factor now that you have to be a closer, or else you give up basically 11% more hits or walks uh, than you would an ordinary pitcher would. So they do punish those non-closers. So they do have that closer rating. I would also note that again we've been bullpenning for a long time. Remember that one of the keys to winning Stratomatic, if you've never played before, is getting good bullpens because on a ratio basis they're always not always, they're usually better than starters. There are 20 cards as good as Bieber, Bauer, and Gonsolin out there in the bullpen, right? And every level you go down in pitchers, there's lots of bullpen cards that are just as good as those ace starters. And they're a lot cheaper to acquire. They go later in drafts. People are more willing to trade them because you don't usually build a team on your bullpen long-term. So you can get them cheaper. So one of the quick ways to really correct a, a mediocre pitching staff is to go get three or four good relievers. And the p- thing people don't understand is when it comes playoff time, most playoff leagues will give you like a 10% usage factor. Well, on a starting pitcher, he can only start two games and he's going to get tired in the sixth or seventh inning. But a bullpen pitcher, you give a guy who threw 70 innings 10% usage, that's seven innings in a seven-game series. You can really leverage that card immensely in key situations. And if you have several of those cards, again, we were taking pitchers out in the fifth and sixth innings just because we had better options in the bullpen long before the major leaguers were doing it. So building a bullpen is a quick way to turn yourself into a contender because you get a lot better ratios than starting pitchers because the bullpen guys face less hitters. I've talked with guys who play Strat and other sim-type formats about the willingness of the players 
to experiment with lineups and with pitching structures and all that kind of stuff. And you're right. There's a lot of them have reported years before some of the stuff finally found its way into the big leagues about, uh, you know, using openers, for instance, bulk guys, uh, early relievers, relief packages, all this kind of matchup stuff that for the longest time, major league managers seemed really loath to, to even try. And in the, in the SIM formats, it was working and they, some of the credit for the fact that Major League Baseball is now starting to look at those things, I think, is directly due to the fact that there's people in Major League Baseball who know of or perhaps play sim games themselves and are realizing, hey, you know, the guy who wins my league every year is doing these things differently. Maybe we ought to be looking at it. It's exploiting inefficiencies. It's Moneyball basically came out of this kind of format of people who look at things differently and and, and there's lots of things. One guy one year had three closers. And I said, well, why don't you trade one of those? He goes, no, I got the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning covered. And this was 20 years ago. I got the best seventh, eighth, and ninth inning pitchers you could ever have. So my games are only six innings long because I got you the last three. Wow. You know, that was happening way before the majors were doing it. Um, and, and the lineup construction, I, I always put my best hitters first, as long as they get on base. Cause if I can get as many at bats as I can, I look at it this way. If I have one guy, I can get one extra at bat. The game's on the line. Who do I want? I want Mike Trout. I want to lead him off. Then who can protect Trout the best? If they want to intentionally walk him, who could be behind him? Well, I want a player who my second best hitter, ideally a lefty hitter, and in Stratomatic, you'd say a backwards lefty hitter like Juan Soto, where he's actually better last year against left-handers than he was against right-handers. So if someone brings in a lefty to shut down Trout, now they're going to have to face Juan Soto, who's better against lefties. So that the lineup construction gets really fun. Like I said, it's like a consistent chess game all along. And uh, does a Strat game in 2021, or I guess last year, because this is when it started, are you bound by the constriction that if you bring a reliever in, he has to face three batters or finish the inning? That is an optional feature that each league can decide. Most leagues have not adopted that, but there are some that like to be true to the actual season and do. But many of the features Stratomatic has are optional, that you can decide if you want clutch hitting, you can decide which type of tiring factor uh, for starting pitchers, how that works. Um, and so most of the new features they've made have been optional so that you can use them if you like. Uh, they, they rate catchers on blocking the plate. You know, they have, now you can have your hitters fielding ready to determine whether he robs a home run occasionally. Um, there's all kinds of optional features that you can tailor the game just the way that you want it. And Matt, before we go, I know you've also been playing Roto Style. You mentioned some uh, NFBC drafts that you've been in. How much do you think playing Strat has improved your Roto playing in other formats? Um, it's really interesting because you th- it it has, but I would start with the with the weakness first. The weakness is that in at Baseball HQ we look for statistical anomalies, high strand rates, right? Low hit rates was the guy unlucky or lucky, and we look at the regression to the mean to project what's going to happen next year. At Stratomatic, you do the opposite. You look for those statistical anomalies and you want to exploit them. You want to say, boy, that guy really had a low hit rate this year, and and so therefore his card is going to be great. So I want that statistical anomaly in Stratomatic, or I want to trade it if I don't have a contender. So they actually work in opposite tandem, but that doesn't mean you don't find good guys. So for example, last year, I was on to Anthony Bass before anyone else. Not that I knew that much about him, other than he, well, he has an incredible Stratomatic card. 
I looked at HQ and well, his metrics aren't great, but he, he, I know he can get guys out. And before I knew it, he was a closer in Toronto for a while and had another good year and has another great strat card. So there are times you can find guys or find a guy that has a, um, a weakness that they're one skill away. So Tristan McKenzie would be a guy like that for Cleveland this year. If he can just control the long ball, his ratios are fantastic. Um, there's been several relievers like that. Remember Keith Folk back in the day is one that jumps out at me. Um, that there's pitchers that you see them getting guys out, but they just haven't figured out their location. They have a little too many walks, but there's not many hit chances against them. Uh, Mark Melanson was that way when he first came up. I remember Mark Wollers, uh, Craig Kimbrell. So you you look for some of the things there that can make you better. So you can find some of those hidden gems that way. I think it really helps you in daily probably a lot more, which I don't do, but looking for that lefty killer, you really look at platoons a lot more in uh, in matchups for daily than you do in roto. Um, so I think that it probably helps you more in daily, but you still find guys and you, you find, well, I didn't know this guy was that good. And you also see that, Hey, this guy's a really good fielder. So if he slumps, the team's not going to send him to the minors. They're going to keep him for his glove for a while to see if he corrects himself versus a bad fielder that comes up and he's hurting him in the field and not hitting. He's going to get sent to the minors right away. Well, Matt, this has been uh, instructional and informative and fun and interesting. Uh, remind our listeners where they can keep up with Matt Beagle. I'll be hosting some things at the First Pitch Florida Forum this weekend. It's a uh, virtual forum. So on Saturday night at 8 o'clock, we're going to have a strat room where I'll analyze your strat team. And if you play APA or another format, a lot of the things carry over. I'm usually on the alternative part of the site, um, Baseball HQ. I'm going to be doing our points league draft guide here. The first, the week of March 14th, we'll be uh, posting some points leagues draft guides on the site as well. So on the alternative side of the site is usually where you find me. And any Twitter or Facebook? I have a Twitter handle that I haven't used in two years. I don't try to be real public with that. I don't, I don't want to get into politics and I don't want people judging every little thing. I try to try to watch what I say. And uh, so I, if I have a strong opinion, I'll tweet it out. I may tweet out, I think the Indians should trade Shane Bieber and Jose Ramirez and rebuild, but uh, I don't tweet very much. It's at Matt underscore Beagle, but like I said, I haven't seen anything out there in two years, so there won't be much for you to find. I think I have 69 followers. <laughs> well, you, <laughs> you you should have more, especially when you're talking about baseball. Uh, Matt, it's been a slice, uh, been too long. We'll have to try to catch up with you again more regularly, and thanks for doing this this day. Loved it, Patrick. Enjoyed it, and... Uh, Look forward to doing it in the future. Matt Beagle writes about Stratomatic for Baseball HQ. And hey, before we roll ahead, I wanted to let you know about our next show. It's another Two Tau Tuesday edition with researcher and writer Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs and a return visit from our old friend Todd Zola from Masters Ball and pretty much everywhere else. That's this coming Tuesday here on Baseball HQ Radio. Coming up, we have our special feature interview with Jeff Barton of Scoresheet Baseball, Next on Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our second unscheduled feature, an interview with Jeff Barton from Scoresheet Baseball. Jeff, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. It's good to see you too. Uh, You're the... uh, guy who runs Scoresheet Baseball, you and your brother, uh, you're the kind of business guy and he's the kind of behind the scenes guy who handles the computer. For people who are not familiar with Scoresheet, uh, explain how Scoresheet works, what it is. Okay. It's um, a lot of folks 40 years ago or even 
more recently played board games like Stratomatic where played a simulated game, but you always use the previous season stats or even years ago. So when fantasy baseball, rotisserie baseball got started getting popular in the 80s, we decided, hey, we really like the idea of drafting people before the season starts and then using their stats, but we also like a simulation rather than just getting four points for a home run or winning a category. So the way score sheet works is just like other fantasy games, you turn in a lineup before the week starts because we're a weekly game. And then what your guys do that week in the majors is how your team does. But we have your team actually play games at bat by at bat, nine inning games based on what your hitters and your the opposing pitchers did or what your pitchers and the opposing hitters did. So you get to, it's much more of a real baseball game. We don't have points or categories and you get to set up lineups and pitching rotations and bullpen strategies. Um, and so I, I think it's, we like to say a little more realistic, though obviously people love the rotisserie system also. We just kind of have a, maybe a chess versus checkers um, game. So it's head-to-head. You're in a league and you're playing one guy at a time uh, or one opponent at a time, and the the outcomes are based on the statistics that your players get in real time alongside your, your sim team. Right. So, yeah, you're in a league of usually 10 teams from the AL or NL only or 15 to 20 teams combined league, and you usually play two, three-game series a week. So you play two other teams in the league each week. That's how it generally works. Sometimes it's three two-game series. So it's head-to-head. And, you know, based on how well your players did that week and also just as equally how your opponents did, you know, if you got a hitter that did pretty well but the team you're facing had pitchers that did really well, you know, it kind of balances out. It's just harder to get a home run off Scherzer than it is off of a Giants pitcher. And the, I think it's not, it should, we should be clear, it's not an at-bat-per-at-bat basis. Like, you can't, you can't say that if um, Mike Trout hits a home run in the third inning of his first game that he's going to do the same at that same exact point in a game for your, for your score sheet team? That's correct. It's a, it's a weekly game, and so we use a week's worth of stats. So it's more like, did Mount, Mike Trout hit two homers in 23 at-bats that week? In which case, if he's facing average pitching, each at bat score sheet, he'd have a two out of 23 chance of hitting a home run. But yeah, we don't, you know, you use opponent stats, so he might have hit a home run in his second at bat, but it wasn't off the pitcher that you're going to be facing in score sheet. So it's, it's a week's worth of stats compiled. But unlike the old board games, at least it's a game of prediction which to me is one of the most fun things of fantasy you know drafting a guy when you know what he did last year because you're going to use last year's stats to me is not nearly as much fun as you know drafting David Fletcher hoping that this is the year he really breaks out in the strato format because you're looking at last year's performances to base this year's competition on you don't have the fun of that is really central to uh, rotisserie style or point style fantasy baseball in that 
you're not able to watch your players perform in real time and know that what they did, if they did something really well, you're going to benefit from it this week because he did well this week. It's not like you have to wait till next April to benefit from it. You're going to benefit from it in real time. So as I said, if you happen to have Mookie Betts on your roster and he hits two home runs and steals two bags in a game while you're watching, you can go, man, that's excellent because I know that's going to pay off for me right now. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, I said, we really like the whole simulation concept of a board game because, you know, things like walks just don't matter much in rotisserie or middle relievers. Whereas in a simulation, you know, all that stuff matters pretty much the same amount as it does in real life. So we like the simulation, but yeah, I got tired of playing with old stats. So when they came up with that rotisserie idea in the 80s of draft people and then We'll play with the upcoming year stats. That's when my brother and I said, not that sounds like a really good time. We should try to do something like that. I talked about uh, something with uh, Matt Beagle earlier when we were talking about Strat, and that is the freedom that you have as a fantasy manager to adjust your lineup to reflect how you think baseball ought to be played. And that's one of the things that he really likes about it. And I wonder if it's the same thing is true here, whether, for instance, if you wanted to take the Gene McCaffrey route and put your best OPS guy hitting first, your second best guy second down to your worst guy of hitting ninth. You're free to do that? Oh, yeah. You set up a lineup, and then that's the lineup we use. So if you want to bat Mike Trout first, um, you know, and this, this idea baseball managers used to have of who cares if a guy gets on if he's fast, we'll bat him leadoff. You certainly don't have to do that um, for your score sheet team, you know. You don't have to bat Billy Hamilton first just because he might steal a base because you can't get on base to steal the base. Um, and the same thing's true with stealing and bunting and platooning. You know, if you don't like steals because you hate having your guys get caught stealing, you can just tell us, I don't care what this guy does in real life. He should not try to steal for me. Because um, if a guy does try to steal, whether he gets caught or not is based on his success rate in real life. So you, you set a steal strategy of yes, let him steal as much as he does in real life or no, I don't want to get caught stealing. And the same, if you're not into sacrifice bunting, you can have none of your guys sacrifice. And if you want your catcher to bunt so he doesn't hit into a double play, you can tell us you want him to bunt starting in the first inning. If it's a bunt situation. Um, and kind of the same things with pitchers. You, you set a hook number for your starting pitchers. You know, and if you have a really good bullpen, you put a low hook number. And once he gives up two runs, three runs, whatever, he gets yanked and your bullpen comes in. And if you have a horrible bullpen, you just say, nah, let my starter pitch as much as he did in real life. I'll trust him to be better than my bullpen. So you mentioned this kind of situational adjustment that you're allowed to make. When it comes to a pitcher he can only pitch as many innings or get as many outs or face as many batters as he did in the actual play of the, of that, of that week's games while you're watching, or can you somehow stretch it out so that it's on a ratio basis? Now playing time for batters and hitters, I mean, batters and pitchers is limited by how much they played that week in the majors. So, you know, you can't, that's why middle relievers are important because most starting pitchers, they pitch five, maybe six innings these days. 
So it's not like the old days where you could have a starter and a closer and that would be your nine innings. You know, you have to you have to get from the fifth inning when whoever Bauer leaves the game to the ninth inning when Chapman comes in. Somebody has to pitch that seventh, eighth, sixth inning. Because yeah, we do limit it. So um, having a bench is important. We have teams draft a fairly large roster in the preseason, and just like real life, you know, if if Mike Trout only gets 400 at bats in real life that year, he's only going to get 400 for use. So you need a backup outfielder for him. And in this, in the situational uh, setting up your your roster, can you be as fine grained as saying, "I don't mind. I'll have this guy steal if we're." Uh, tied or ahead in the game, but I don't want him stealing if we're behind and late or something like that. Uh, can it be that granular? It's kind of a simple yes or no, but we only have guys steal when it makes sense. You know, if you're one run behind and he's on first base, you want to get him to second. If you've told us you want him to steal, we're going to let him steal. But if you're three runs behind, it doesn't do any real good to have one go from first to second in the eighth inning. The caught stealing is a much bigger penalty than benefit. So we only have guys steal if they're a tying or go-ahead run, not a, you know, not a, I'm three runs behind, why did this guy get thrown out? The sim games often are viewed as kind of experimental in the, st- in the sense that when your, when your managers adapt interesting new strategies, it's a way for everybody inside baseball, if they had access to the information, to say, here's somebody who's doing something strategic or tactically in a much different way than we'd expect. Uh, for example, um, the opener strategy. The opener strategy c- could have been tried in your game, could it not have? Could, could, you, could you start a pitcher who wasn't a starter and, and bring in the next guy an inning later? Yeah, you could do things like that in our game. I think the thing to do strategy testing is to play a game, I think, like Strata, where you can play a thousand games with the same players on the team, but try different strategies. You know, you could play a hundred games with Billy Hamilton batting leadoff and a hundred games and then batting eighth and see which, which worked better. Whereas our game, you know, it's more like a regular fantasy game. You can't play a week's worth of games and then go, oh, I wish I'd done this. When I, when I say play, I should maybe make it clear. We do all the playing on our computer. You know, it's like fantasy. You turn in a lineup on our website, and then we do all the playing of the games. It's not a board or a computer game where you sit at your computer and and play the game yourself. You know, you, you, you do all the strategy decisions by turning in a lineup. But then we compile all the stats. We play all the games. And we send out results just kind of like a you know, a fantasy game sends out standings at the end of the week saying, well, just we don't have categories or points. We have one loss records and real baseball standings. Do you get in your report, do you get a set of box scores showing how you guys did in the particular simulated game? Yeah, we send out a score sheet, just like if you went to the game and kept scoring yourself on a paper score sheet. We send out a score sheet for every game. We also have on the website, on your league webpage, there's a text-based and picture-based um, play-by-play thing where if you want to watch your games literally unfold at bat-by-bat, you can watch them on the web. It'll say, you know, Scherzer strikes out Dubon. Um, you know, Longoria gets a double and, and on and on. So you can watch it like that. And actually, 
you know, people like doing that. I mean, it's especially in COVID days, you know, you're sitting at home 24 seven. Anyhow, a lot of people have plenty of free time to watch a game at bat by at bat kind of play out like an announcer. That seems like it would be fun. And we've probably had that up on the web six or eight years now. People really like it. I mean, there is an announcer voice that reads out the play. So, and actually, a couple of years ago, we did add audio. It used to be just a text base. Now, a couple of years ago, we added audio. So now if you're driving to work, you know, you can put it on your smartphone or whatever. And you can, you know, if there's not a real baseball game going on, you can drive to work and listen to your score sheet team play a game and see how you did. You've played a little bit of regular fantasy baseball. We were talking earlier that you were in an experts league this year, and you said you're an operator of games, not a not an expert on games. But you have exposure to fantasy baseball in other respects. To what extent does a good score sheet hitter or pitcher map to a good rotisserie hitter or pitcher? There are some differences. Just because I think, and I don't mean to say negative things about rotisserie when I say this, but rotisserie gives added value to things like strikeouts and steals um, that I think in real baseball, most people don't value steals that much anymore. And they also use wins and losses more than we do because we feel that's a very team-dependent stat. And so for us... You know, a, a good player is still a good player in both systems, but you do need to come up with a a different draft list kind of on the margins because you don't – in some ways, it's a lot easier, I think, to play score sheet. You don't have to worry about who's going to get saves for Detroit. You just want to pick the best pitchers as measured by ERA and WHIP, and then they can get saves for your team because you can say, I want this guy to come in and pitch in the ninth inning whether he's getting saves in real life or not. And you don't have to worry so much about a win. Like you can draft a Detroit pitcher if you think he's good and not worry about the fact Detroit might not win many games. And over on the batting side, you need to – the team-dependent stats are not as important. So RBIs and runs scored don't matter as much in score sheet. They're real life runs. What really matters in score sheet is on base percentage, slugging percentage. So I said, in some ways it's easier. You don't have to worry about is my guy going to go from batting lead off to batting seventh. Now he won't get as many runs scored. You just pick a guy that you think is going to have a good on base, good slugging percentage. And that's who you want on your team. And that matters, especially for people who have good players on poorly run major league teams or good players who are pushed down the lineup just because they're stacked above them. I'm thinking of the Toronto Blue Jays where all of a sudden you get players who were hitting third last year that might be hitting seventh this year. There's the same player. They've just added better guys in that 3-4-5 slot, and you still might think, you know, this guy's hitting seventh, but in my lineup he's going to hit fifth. And that means if he's hitting the ball and and getting the job done on the field, then he's going to drive in uh, runs and improve my my team's chances of winning, irrespective of his team context in Major League Baseball. That is exactly correct. Um, Which is why I say, in, in some ways, I think a score sheet draft is a little simpler because you don't have to worry about how many real life RB guys is a guy's going to get. You just want to look at your projections, and if some guy's predicted to have an 860 OPS, 
you pick him. Um, you know, what we tell new people is just pretend you're picking players for your favorite major league team. Don't worry about winning a category. Don't worry about if their real-life manager might not give this guy saves because they just traded for Liam Hendricks and now no other pitcher on the White Sox is going to get a save. That doesn't matter. Devin Williams, for instance, you know, he's behind a hater for saves, at least as of now. But if he's going to strike out 15 guys every nine innings, you want Devin Williams on your team. And then you can make him your closer if that's what you want to do. You can tell the system, you know, late and close, I want I want this guy in the ninth inning. Not He doesn't have to have a closer tag like Strat has uh, exactly. introduced. No, you could use anyone you want as your closer. Um, many years ago, Rob Dibble used to lead score sheet leagues in saves because he was so dominant, even though Cincinnati, you know, was letting Randy Myers get saves. But yeah, if you have a dominant Nick Anderson, Devin Williams, someone like that, you can use him as a closer. And if he's going to never give up a run in real life, he's going to save a lot of games for your team, whether he gets saves in real life or not. Are there any instances that you've learned about that the strategy or tactics that your fantasy managers in score sheet use are out of step with Major League Baseball and maybe don't make sense? Or is it, generally speaking, has it always been a case where a well-run, well-managed score sheet team is going to be successful much in the same way that a well-run, well-managed big league team would be? Um, if it's well-managed, it'll be successful. Actually, I think score sheet managers, a lot of the successful ones, they came up with this whole opener strategy and use your good middle relievers a lot more than they were in real life long before major league baseball managers, you know, major league baseball managers stuck with this idea of let's let Jose Mesa be our closer, even if he has an ERA of five, because he quote has the makeup of a closer. Well, no good score sheet manager was having Jose Mesa be his closer with an ERA of five. They were, you know, playing the guy that had a whip of one and an ERA of one and a half, and he'd get saves. So I think Scorsese managers were maybe ahead of the curve, partly because they don't have to manage egos. You know, you can't – a real-life manager can't really tell an aging player who's always batted third, oh, you're going to bat eighth this year because he goes ballistic. But in Scorsese, if you've got – uh, Yadier Molina, and he's old, you don't worry about his ego. You just bat him eighth. And I'm thinking about the comeback to this or the devil's advocate position is you might think that it's just taking the, a pitcher with excellent skills and plopping him into that ninth inning role, but the old baseball guys say, oh, but you're not understanding the importance of guile and the importance of character, the w ability to withstand pressure and all of those kind of things. I think they're all overstated. Well, how do you respond to that argument? You know, Bill James used to write about the whole idea of clutch and how he could never find any evidence that really they were clutch hitters and non-clutch hitters. He just, every study he ever did said there are good hitters and there are not good hitters and good pitchers and not good pitchers. But this idea that people day in and day out that are clutch hit better in the eighth inning of a close game than they do in the third inning, he just could never find any evidence of that. And 
maybe closing might be a little different. Maybe when the fans are all going nuts and your whole team's counting on you. You know, there's probably some pitchers that cannot handle the pressure that well, but they're in the major leagues. You know, they got to the major leagues. They're probably not like me when I was batting in Pony League and I'd be nervous. You know, they're probably pretty dang confident or they wouldn't be in the major leagues. Right. They've had a lot of success through the years playing baseball and even in the major leagues, especially pitchers, you still succeed seven times out of 10, even against the best hitters in the world. So there's no reason to be worried. Although I think, frankly, I do believe that there are some guys who do feel the pressure and probably aren't well adapted to it. And I think major league baseball figures that out pretty quickly and, and finds other roles for those type of guys to play in, uh, in a kind of related question, uh, Jeff, one of the knocks on rotisserie-style fantasy baseball is that smart guys who get into the game soon realize that it's different enough from real baseball that you can game the system. And so every so often you'll hear or read about some strategy that says, don't even bother trying to get strikeouts, or don't even target wins, or have nine like end-game pitchers and just dominate your hitting. These are strategies that can work in rotisserie, but they can't work in real baseball. And I'm going to make an anticipation here. They can't work in score sheet either. No, not really. I mean, we don't have categories. You know, the, the fact is that the stats that really matter in score sheet, well, of course, are playing time because we limit playing time. Having a great pitcher who, for whatever reason, only pitches 25 innings over the year doesn't do you that much good. But so playing time is important. And so you got to worry about injuries. But the stats that matter for players that have playing time, for, for hitters, they're really on-base percentage is the most important. Slugging percentage is the second, just like real life. They figured that out finally in Major League Baseball that, you know, you're like me. You're not 21. You remember back when batting average was everything. You know, and long ago, score sheet managers figured out that, no, batting average doesn't really matter much. It, if a guy walks 120 times a year, I don't care that much about his batting average. I, I care about his on-base percentage. And for pitchers, it's ERA. Well, and whip also for relievers. Well, for any pitcher, they don't want to put people on base. So you can't really – you can game the system a little bit, I think, by not concentrating on starters and getting a lot of really good relievers. But that's been kind of figured out by, you know, if everyone in your league knows that, you can't wait till the 18th round of a draft to draft the best middle reliever because he's long gone. Um, so, no, I would say that you can play games in a category rotisserie system that you can't, you know, game the system that you can't really do in score sheet. I think I don't want to sound like a shill here, but I think in score sheet, you really need to draft people that you wish your real favorite major league team was drafting, you know, like, as opposed to, oh, this guy, I mean, I keep coming back to Billy Hamilton, but I remember the Giants were talking about he's going to play center field for him a couple of years ago. I was pounding the computer like, no, no. Well, that raises the question, what about defense? We use errors and we also use fielding range. Um, fielding range is one of the only things we use based from previous seasons because there's just not enough data every week to determine whether a guy is – how many balls a guy's gotten to it's you know, in a week. You just might not have that many balls hit to you. So, but we use range 
and it'll help or hurt your pitcher. So if you have a really good fielding team based on the range, your pitchers will actually give up a little less number of hits in score sheet than they did in real life because your hit your fielders will save them some hits and thus some runs. And Dalton Simmons has a lot, lot more value in our game than he does in a rotisserie game. And finally, Jeff, we talked about the acquisition of players, like what kind of players you want to get, but how are the players dispersed at the start of the season? We have a couple leagues, a few leagues that do auction, but the leagues we run drafts for are all just straight drafts, not auctions. Actually, most of our leagues, probably three quarters, maybe even more of our leagues are dynasty leagues, keeper leagues. So a lot of them keep 13 players a year. So the first 13 rounds of a draft are just designating what players you're keeping from your team from last year. And then in a keeper league, we'll run a draft after the keepers are designated where drafts in reverse order of last year's standings every round, just like real life. You know, the, the Lakers draft last on the NBA. So, you know, in, in score sheet, the Dodgers, you know, we follow what the Dodgers drafting last. Um, and then in one year leagues, there's a snake draft because there's no standings from last year. It's just a brand new league every year. So those we do snake drafts. And then instead of doing waiver wires, this is kind of a throwback from when people weren't as serious, I think, about fantasy and wanted some free time. So instead of just doing waiver wires or fab system, we just have every team pick. We do a two-round draft in the middle of every month of the season, and everybody adds two more players to their roster in a draft. Um, Because we have you draft 35 players a team in the preseason, so pretty much all the guys – that anyone wants in the preseason are gone. And then in the middle of April, everybody gets to pick two players. And, we, you know, you're picking guys that are suddenly getting playing time because of injuries in real life. And two more guys in May. So that's that's how most – we have some other leagues that do their own drafts, and we let them do them whenever they want. But if you're doing a league where we kind of run everything, um, that's pretty much how it works. So if you want to, you can run a league where you set up your draft at your buddy's house. Everybody has a few beers and talks crap to one another. And and at the end of the day, somebody just inputs the outcome of that draft into your system? Exactly. And then they can do during the season what they want to. If they want to do their own get-together once a month. We used to do this years ago. Get together at a pizza place, have a pizza and a pitcher of beer and once a month. It's a great excuse to see your friends pick a couple players, input that in the system, and we just add them to everyone's rosters. So this year, of course, all these leagues that used to do what you said are calling us up saying, hey, we've never done a draft through you. We just tell you who we have. How do we do that? We need to do it this year because people still don't really want to gather in a group of 10, 12 people much. Uh, Hopefully that'll be different soon. I don't suppose they do is exactly right. And and as far as transactions, can a, can a separately organized league using your platform also run their own transactions and just inform you, hey, as of this week, so-and-so's dropping or reserving this player and adding that player? Yeah, if they have their own league, they can do whatever add and drops they want on our website and then just click the send button and it gets sent to us. Um for the leagues that we put strangers together and just formed a league, they don't do drops. They just take part in that two-round monthly draft. But teams in both in every league, people trade all the time. You know, so you can no matter what kind of league you're in, 
if you want to trade Soto for Acuna, you know, you can. You just make the trade just like rotisserie or fantasy. You make the trade, turn it in, which that's one thing I – I know people love daily fantasy because let's face it, people like to gamble and it's a gambling game, but you know, for an awful lot of people, I think the draft and then trading are the two favorite things they have about playing fantasy or rotisserie. And neither one of those happen in daily. You just take whoever you want and enter a lineup and the next day it's done and you do it again. Um, unless of course you're winning a lot of money, then you're happy. Jeff, tell our listeners where they can uh, figure out how to get involved with ScoreSheet and keep up with Jeff Barton. Um, we have a website, www.scoresheet, all one word, dot com. Um, yeah, scoresheet.com, just like a game score sheet it's spelled. Or they could give us a call, 530-470-1880. Or they can send us an email to staff at scoresheet.com. But probably the best way to you know, get a basic information is just go to the website. But I'm happy to talk to people on the phone. Jeff, thanks a lot for talking with us today about score sheet. It's such an interesting game. And I do hope that maybe we'll catch up with you partway through the year and we'll talk about how the season is going. Yeah, and we'll, you know, talk about breakout players. There's a lot of players that, you know, they're these breakout guys, they're just as valuable to a rotisserie owner as a score sheet owner. Um but yeah, I'd love to talk to you anytime, and then hopefully by next fall, everything's back more or less to normal, and we'll see you in the desert. That'd be fantastic. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Jeff Barton owns and operates Scoresheet Baseball. When we come back, it'll be our regular commentaries, my extra innings comment coming up, and the frequent flyer all next on Baseball HQ Radio. I played all the sports as a young boy, but it was always baseball that I loved the most. I collected baseball cards as a hobby and one day dream of what it would be like to have my picture on one of those cards. You see, I always have been a fan of the game first and a ball player second. Maybe that's why I had the love and passion for this great game so much. I only caught five or six games my senior year of high school. But during those five or six games, a scout by the name of Bob Zuck, who is here with us today, believed I could become a big league catcher someday. He held true to his word, and on the night of the draft, at 18 years of age, I signed a contract with the Expos and started my making plans to head off to Jamestown, New York. Bob, thanks for believing in me. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular commentaries. My Extra Innings comment is coming up, but leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available at this stage in your draft and still have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Dodgers outfielder DJ Peters is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Standing six foot six, it's hard to imagine how DJ Peters could get lost in any crowd. But perhaps that's exactly what's happened in Los Angeles. Sure, at six foot six, some people might assume that LA's twenty-five-year-old DJ Peters plays center for the Lakers or perhaps even the Clippers. But instead, California native DJ Peters plays center for the Dodgers, or perhaps he will someday, maybe sooner than you think. 
And, of course, the L.A. crowd we're talking about standing out in is L.A.'s crowded but outstanding outfield comprised of Mookie Betts, Cody Bellinger, and A.J. Pollock, among others. In other words, it might be difficult for D.J. Peters to find regular playing time in Chavez Ravine in 2021. That's why D.J. Peters, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot who hits long shots, and thus may be worth a flyer if he is still available late in your draft. Even so, DJ Peters has belted at least 20 home runs in each of the past three seasons, including leading the AA Texas League in home runs in 2018 with 29. Passing through two levels of the minors in 2019, AA and AAA, DJ Peters launched another 23 home runs between both levels. In fact, after his first digger of Dodgers spring training this year on March 1st, 2021, Dodgers manager Dave Roberts offered high praise for DJ Peters. Nobody works harder and nobody cares more, Dave Roberts said of DJ Peters, according to MLB.com. High praise among the Dodgers, indeed. In fact, our own Chris Blessing also offered some high praise, along with a video clip of DJ Peters, in his Miners Prospect Notebook column way back on August 21st, 2019, where Chris said that the power of DJ Peters is eye-popping, perhaps also demonstrating the powerful Miners coverage currently awaiting you on BaseballHQ.com. However, Chris Blessing also added that unfortunately the hit tool needs some work. Digging deeper, something we love to do at BaseballHQ.com, DJ Peters' 260 average at AAA in 2019, and perhaps more telling, DJ Peters' 64% contact rate at AAA in 2019, needs some work, as Chris Blessing said. In fact, we at BaseballHQ.com consider a contact rate of 70% or less to be a hacker at the plate, and DJ Peters' 64% contact rate certainly fits that category. However, DJ Peters was reportedly part of the Dodgers 60-man roster trading at the alternate site in 2020, so perhaps DJ Peters was able to work on his hit tool in 2020. Still, the power is eye-popping, and hence, selecting the Los Angeles Dodgers power-hitting center fielder, DJ Peters, late, might also be eye-popping in drafts as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for extra innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about my huge blunder in TGFBI. So there I was, drafting my team in this year's great fantasy baseball invitational, and everything was going pretty well. From the four-hole, I had drafted Mookie Betts and Max Scherzer to set the foundations of my hitting and pitching, then I added Anthony Rendon to further buttress my batting average, and Kevin Biggio for a little more all-around power and speed at a fairly skimpy second base position. In the fifth round, I was going to shore up my pitching with a Tier 2 starter from an available pool that included guys like Lance Lynn, Steven Strasburg, Hyunjin Ryu, Sonny Gray, Zach Plesak, Kyle Hendricks, you know the kind of guys I mean. With three picks to go, I had settled on Ryu if he fell to me. I had Ryu on my tout American League team last year, and he was pretty terrific. And I thought, well, if I get sniped on Ryu, I'll back him up with Strasburg and Lynn as my alternates. One guy who was absolutely not on my radar was Eddie Rosario. Now, 
you might not be as advanced an expert as I am in these matters, so let me explain. First, Eddie Rosario is not a starting pitcher. In fact, Eddie Rosario is not a pitcher at all. He's an outfielder. Second, I already had an outfielder. You might remember Mookie Betts. And outfield is the thickest position on the board. Plenty of options all up and down the draft. And most of the outfielders who had been drafted weren't guys I would have taken, so I was sitting pretty. Third, Eddie Rosario was not one of the guys I was thinking of taking. He wasn't worth a fifth-round pick. More like an eighth-round pick. In fact, I had added Eddie Rosario to the bottom of my picks queue just in case he fell to the late 8th, maybe early ninth round. Now, another factor in all of this is that this particular TGFBI draft is going very slowly. Of all the drafts underway in the competition, we were by far the slowest. We're something like seven rounds behind the leaders and a good round and a half back of the next slowest draft out there. If the fastest draft were Usain Bolt, we would be, I don't know, Greg Luzinski, or, or me for that matter. To make matters worse, I had been the culprit for at least some of the slowness. I'm drafting in the middle of a work week that got really busy, with several incidents that needed focus and attention. I had taken two and a half hours to draft Rendon in the third round, and I didn't want to be that guy holding things up especially since we have one guy in the league drafting somewhere in Asia, I think, and another one somewhere in Europe. So to move things along, when the draft closed down for the night at 10 o'clock on Tuesday, I set my pick to auto-draft to make sure I wouldn't be the one holding things up the next morning. So when the next morning rolled around and I looked at my board, I was gobsmacked to see that my fifth-round pick had somehow become Eddie Rosario. I must have dragged him to the top of the queue for some reason, maybe trying to drag him off it altogether, and then I left the pick in place, and Autodraft did what it is programmed to do. Not a terrific play by me, and I'm sure you can guess what happened next. All those fifth-round tier two starters went flying off the board like the hot dogs at Greg Luzinski's House of Chow buffet. After I took Rosario, Lynn went with the very next pick, then Strasburg, Ryu, Gray, Plesak, Hendricks, you can imagine. So to sum up, one little auto-draft mistake simultaneously scorched my draft strategy and landed me an 8th or ninth round outfielder that I didn't need in the 5th round. Just for comparison's sake, if I had wanted an outfielder in the 5th round, I could have had my choice of Aaron Judge or Michael Conforto or Lourdes Gurriel. These are guys I actually would want. Now I'm stuck with a lot of dart throws to build my rotation, with some of those darts being thrown in rounds where I should be looking at saves guys and other positional needs. I got Denelson Lamette with my first starting pitcher dart, then I made a strategic adjustment to add best available bats, including Gurriel himself, uh, J.D. Martinez, about whom Ray and I talked earlier for a bounce back, I got Marcus Semyon, and I got Josh Bell to fill up my infield. As a result, through the first 10 rounds, I have only two pitchers and a fairly daunting deficit in projected pitching points, but I also have a fairly commanding lead in hitting, and I'm sitting fifth overall in projected points. I'm hoping that just adding some volume will correct my pitching at least somewhat to the point where I can be competitive. But you know what would really help? A career year from Eddie Rosario. Now, if you'll excuse me, my next pick is coming up. And, oh, by the way, if you're in TGFBI League number 668, don't get after me if I'm a little slow to my next few picks. I turned off the auto-draft. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. 
And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 5th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 10 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our HQ Spotlight guest for this early Friday really full edition. Matt Beagle writes about Stratomatic for Baseball HQ. He's a former member of the HQ Radio team and just a great all-around guy. Thanks also to Jeff Barton, the co-owner and operator of Scoresheet Baseball, who graciously stepped in to help us out with that format and another great guy to hang out with and talk baseball, among other things. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentator was Ray Murphy doing double duty, and our frequent flyer commentator, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go wherever you catch your podcasts and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with another Toot How Tuesday edition featuring researcher and writer Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs and a return visit from Todd Zola, the king of fantasy sports media. It's all coming up on Tuesday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you Tuesday and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.